0: Hello everybody. How's it going? Back for another discussion-based podcast. We're going to be talking about queuing today. Um before we get into that, I just want to appreciate everybody for listening and giving positive feedback. Hopefully some of the content you've gotten lately has been of interest, uh including topics of like regenerative medicine and how little dysfunctions can build to big dysfunctions. Um as always feel free to dm or message if you have a topic you want discussed or a person you want interviewed but we got a lot more fun content to come so keep your eyes out for that uh obviously we appreciate everybody listening and if you have the time of day leave a review on whatever app or tool that you're using to listen to this podcast would also be much appreciated um but let's get into kind of the nuts and bolts of what i wanted to talk about today again the odd concept is the idea of external cueing. So first we got to figure out what is cueing, right? So when we're doing movements, a squat, a deadlift, a push, a pull, a lunge, often movements can be less efficient or less optimal than we want. We want the individual to be able to grasp how to fix their movement with almost like an automatic engagement, right? No one's going to volitionally walk around go up and down stairs, like bracing their stomach, it's gotta be this automatic response. And what's been shown to give the best, or better said, the quickest change in movement is the idea of using an external cue. So an internal cue would be something focusing on your inside or your inner body to get change. Um, Draw your belly button towards your spine, pull up your pelvic floor, pull your ribs down, um, move your knee out and so forth. And there's value to that. There actually is a lot of value to internal cueing. It's great in like kind of the acute setting where maybe something's really hot and irritated. It's great for people who maybe lack some of that body awareness or the ability to kind of grasp their movement in space. But it should be something that we progress from. If again, you're all you're doing is cueing, telling them to draw their belly towards your spine, that's going to have very little carryover to function. This is where external cueing comes into play. So I think one of the leaders in our field on external cueing or the art of coaching, or better yet, the language of coaching, is Nick Winkleman. Uh, I believe currently he's still in Ireland working with the rugby team, Um, but he does have a book that came out in the last year or so called The Language of Coaching. It is awesome. He'll give you so many different ways, visual representations of how to get movement to change quick, and he's done a whole bunch of research on it. So please refer to that for even more in-depth info. But an external cue is, instead of thinking about moving your knee out or drawing your belly in, you want to give an external cue such as, you know, a cone in front of you to limit your knee from hitting the cone, or an object next to you and make sure you lean into the object when you do the exercise. So it's about kind of almost the idea of like what's called like a self-limiting exercise. There is a cue, an external force there that if you do the exercise incorrectly, that external cue or whatever the barrier is will limit or hinder your movement and you get that automated response. It also helps people grasp movement. This is something I think that's starting to become common knowledge now is the idea of, you know, training movements, not muscles. So the body does not know what the biceps is the body does not know what the biceps femoris is the body knows what movement is it knows how your knee is positioned in space it knows planes of motion it knows hinge push pull etc <clears throat> so when you're using external cues you're ideally using movement to teach movement versus isolation to teach movement so one of my big goals today were just to give you some examples of that there are tons and tons and tons of great ones But I think outside of you getting some examples today, the other thing I want you to try to grasp is just the idea of learning, right? So we can really only absorb about five to seven cues at one time. So let's say you're working out in a gym. Uh, There's four or five people around you working out. There's music going. Maybe you have music in your ears. Maybe there's a timer going. Um, Maybe it's really hot in the gym. So those are, all ex- those are all external cues or variables, environmental factors that are gonna influence your movement, meaning your body can only kind of process so many things. point I'm trying to make there is you have these environmental issues and then you have coaching cueing. So if you have all those environmental barriers of things around that are gonna distract the mover and then you're giving five to seven additional variables of knees out, butt back, big toe on the ground, shoulder down, your body can just only take so much cueing at once. So again, that's where the external cue comes into play, where you might be able just to give one singular cue, get an automatic quick change in movement, and then eventually progress to taking out that external cue. So these are kind of big picture things that if you're training yourself and you're trying to fix movement, they're beneficial, or if you're training clients. So what I wanted to get into next are some examples of some external cues. Um, and how you might implement them with your training. The first cue is something I think that was coined by FMS. It's called reactive neuromuscular training, but it's actually a principle that's been used in PNF since the 50s of using external or manual cues to force the body to go into bad positions so then the individual has the ability to correct it. So let's just say you know a common thing we all see and take what you take with knee valgus. Um, but it's a common thing we're trying to fix. Just as a sidebar, valgus is normal. Instead of trying to prevent valgus, we should really be trying to learn how to control to get in and out of valgus. So valgus is not the enemy. But let's just for our sake say knee valgus is what we're focusing on. Instead of saying the cue of knees out or you know whatever, raise your arch or whatever cue you're giving. think about using resistive neuromuscular training so what I would do is have a band around the knee pull the knee into more valgus so the individual can feel the dysfunction and have the capacity to restore or limit that dysfunction so I've got a band pulling you into valgus you go into a lunge I'm pulling you more into valgus and you get that external cue of correcting right So you're gonna be able to feel what the dysfunction feels like, feel yourself fixing it, versus giving like a verbal internal cue. You could use this for a shoulder drill, Let's just say they're doing um, an overhead press, and they tend to glide their shoulder more into an anterior superior position, which is a really common dysfunctional movement pattern. So what you can do is be behind the shoulder as they're doing some sort of press variation, and almost push the from the shoulder to the back to the front. You can do it with your hand, you could have a band that's kind of pulling the shoulder forward. So they can feel this forward orientation of the shoulder, get that automatic correction of kind of posterior gliding the shoulder, get the shoulder in a more stacked position, have more efficient overhead function. So it's a quick, simple, easy principle that you could apply basically on any joint. If they're struggling to fix the movement, it might be counterintuitive, but force them into an even worse position so they can fix it. So that's the idea of like a reactive neuromuscular training. Another external cue or principle of external cue that I really like are like mental imagery of things that you might come across in your daily life or concepts that make complete sense so that you can carry over to movement. Let's say you're teaching a kettlebell swing. You've taught them the hinging principles, you've taught them kind of how to load the swing and not overfinish the swing, you know, keep the stacked blocks of the thoracic over the pelvic block in both the top of the swing as well as into the hip hinge of the swing. But one thing that they're lacking is that pop, meaning they're not getting their butt to go from or hip to go from flexion to extension at a quicker pace. So you could give the cue of something like there's a fire behind your butt and you got to get your butt out of the way or the doors closing behind you move your butt out of the way and that simple cue of like quickly getting your butt forward can create tempo and the drive that you're looking for without actually saying like extend your hips it could go the other way where maybe people are struggling with like a posterior weight shift where when they get into the hip hinge they're kind of getting into their toes getting in more of a quad dominated pattern versus more of a posterior hip pattern So if you're trying to cue more of that posterior weight chip with a hip hinge, you could use the door example again of, you know, there's a door behind you and you're trying to close the door with your butt. You could have a physical structure behind you, such as a wall or a squat rack where you got to tap your butt to the wall. You could have a physical object in front of you where as you hinge, I don't want your knees to go forward. So you could cue kind of maybe a blockade in front of their knees. But I think, again, coming back to the original point is having almost some of those imageries of closing the door, get your butt out of the fire, um, stay low, stay long, all those kind of things of, oh, you're crawling underneath a small roof building and stay low as you're doing lateral band walks. Whatever can kind of help people visualize what you're getting, it kind of automatically happens and you get, again, that quicker, longer lasting change. Another common physical barrier that I like to use is if you're in any sort of half kneel position, chops, lifts, presses, um, even maybe doing some thoracic mobility, is with the common pattern that you'll see is people hang on the anterior structures of the hip. They'll kind of go into excessive lumbar spine lordosis. They'll hang out on the anterior hip um, and they'll kind of almost migrate forward as they're hanging out in this half kneel position working. So what I like to do there is with that back leg, half kneel, so one knee's on the ground, the other foot's forward, kind of again on one knee, is I'll put a, like an Airx foam pad or if you maybe have like a shorter foam roll and I'll put it right in front of the hip. And as they stay into that exercise, I say I don't want that down knee hip to hit the foam roll or I don't want you to lengthen forward into that Airx foam pad. It's just another good little cue of trying to limit that Excessive extension into the spine and hip when you're more of a half kneel position. And I think a quick, easy, simple thing to do is just to use walls for external cues for several purposes. So, one is you're teaching stacking, so trying to get the thoracic spine over the pelvic block is you could use a wall to lean on so they're unloaded supported and they can work on positioning of their thoracic block or their pelvic block and then do shoulder stability work you can even do leg strength kind of in that walled position Um, i also like to use walls for that external cue of kind of not pitching forward so if you have the squat they're turning their squats more into hinges where their head really pitches forward you could have them do like a wall squat facing the wall where you have their feet an inch or two away from the wall, they're facing the wall, they squat, and I say, I want you to squat without headbutting the wall. I'll put a chair behind them because often they'll fall, and if they can't figure it out, I'll maybe bring the chair up so it's a smaller range squat, or maybe I'll get them away from the wall, teach them some squats with some assistance, either maybe a band on their butt, heel propped, holding a suspension trainer, and then come back to the wall and see if they can get improved depth on the wall without headbutting the wall. Another area where I like to use external cues is with like your foot positioning. So we have something where we commonly see is this compensated foot posture where the arch is collapsed, the big toe's diving outward, the toe is positioned more in an outward rotated position. And what we wanna to try to do is, you know, get the tripod of the foot going, get the big toe, little toe, heel on the ground, get that arch to remain elevated, get the core of the foot to work. So the two cues I like to kind of use for that, is one that is I'll put a pen in the arch of their foot, a small pen, and I'll have them do balance work, squat work, whatever I'm doing. And I'll say, I don't want you to squeeze that pen. And what the pen will do if they go dysfunctional is the end of the pen underneath the arch will get collapsed and the end of the pen that's kind of just sitting medial to the foot will pop up into the air and they'll see the pen kind of tilt or lean like a pendulum of sorts. And they can tell when that arch it's collapse. The other one is they'll maybe be able to lift the arch, but they'll struggle to keep the base of that first toe on the ground. So I'll put a band or some sort of external structure, but I like the TheraBand underneath the base of the first toe, and I'll say, don't lose the band. So the band will have tension, maybe it's attached to the squat rack, maybe you're holding it, and as they squat and hinge and move, the idea is you should keep weight underneath that big toe, keep that arch supported, but the big thing you would say is, don't lose the band. So those are just some examples of some things you can use to try to fix movement quickly. My big thing that I always try to teach people when I'm teaching classes and things like that is the idea of understanding principles and not techniques. So by that I went over some techniques with you of just some different external cues you can use. I think that's good just to put things in context, also good for you to kind of implement some things right away. But I think the bigger thing to take away is the, the principle of external cues, why you use them why they're more effective and how they lead to quicker changes in movement if you understand that principle then you can get creative and apply it to any sort of movement that you're training Um, so hopefully you got some good info there hopefully you got some cues you can play with as i said feel free to comment leave suggestions reach out if you have questions Um, really appreciate everybody's support and hopefully some more fun content to come I know we have our interview coming up with uh, Tony Garcia, who's a strength coach slash jujitsu coach based out of Portland, Oregon. we're going to be talking about everything kettlebells as he's like a uh, strong first kettlebell instructor, really awesome guy, too. So stay tuned for that interview coming up. Appreciate everybody and have a good day. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Hope everyone's doing well. Hope COVID life is treating you well. Sun's out, getting outside, enjoying things. Um, I think we're starting to settle into our new reality of what life is going to be like post-pandemic, and hopefully people are getting into their groove. Um, Just want to give some knowledge here a little bit. This is going to be more of the discussion-based podcast. Basically, I just want to talk through a few key points of some things that I notice on the daily basis, and hopefully you can learn a little thing or two. Um, As I always say, feel free to email at nickh at capacitypt or DM or whatever method you like to reach out with maybe some content you would like to see discussed or people you'd like to see interviewed. Um, I have some good potential interviews coming up in the future. And these discussions, again, I'm doing about one discussion a month and we're doing one interview a month as well, so stay tuned, those are usually released every other Sunday. Um, All right, well what I wanted to talk about today is the biggest reasons why I do not use ice, or I am against ice. Um, I think it's pretty common train of thought these days that that idea of rice, rest, ice, compression, elevation, is becoming less and less utilized or promoted Still, what I find in the orthopedic world, especially after surgery, it's still prevalently done where they're told to basically be icing all day, every day. And even though this podcast or this discussion is going to be mostly on um, reasons why I don't ice, that doesn't mean icing is completely useless. But before we get into the reasons why I wouldn't, let's go over maybe a reason why I would. Anti-inflammatories, medications, they're systemic drugs that have a huge role in our body. Let's just take uh, Advil, for example. The side effects of Advil are significant where people take it for granted. Um, Obviously, it's gonna be influencing the thickness of our blood. It's gonna have a large impact on our gut. It's gonna be affecting the whole entire system versus just the joint of emphasis. You take it on a repetitive basis, your body's gonna be living in this reduced state Again, there's a role for an anti-inflammatory, but it shouldn't be done all day, every day. And the funny thing, especially in the world we live in now, is the side effects of an anti-inflammatory like Advil are significantly more severe than the side effects of a vaccine. But the vaccine has all this hoopla, it's government run, thus is thought to be way worse than Advil, and people are taking Advil all the time and don't think twice about it. But my point there in regards to ice is The anti-inflammatory nature of it's not great, but what the ice can do is often reduce pain, right? So if we numb up the tissue, we reduce sensation to the tissue, it can help mitigate pain. So if you're in a crap load of pain, you can't get out of pain, or you wanna help reduce pain before trying to go to sleep, I think ice has a role. If you're gonna ice, I often recommend not icing any longer than 10 minutes and having some compressive component to icing, because what I've seen in the research and clinical, kind of experience is that if you're icing longer than that, you often start to get some of these negative effects of icing. So then what are some of the negative effects of icing? One is it's going to be reducing circulation, right? So let's say we have a tendinopathy, let's say even if it's a post-op scenario, you think of inflammation as being bad because we have excess inflammation, and there is some, but we want to promote healing, right? We want to promote circulation. The more circulation we have, the more new blood we have there, the more oxygen to the system, the more healing and tissue regenerative components come to the system and the quicker we heal. Icing may reduce some of the blood flow there, but that uh, reward does not outweigh the risk of reducing the healing cascade. I would rather have a swollen, swollen joint that I can work on active pumping, compression, low load, high volume movement and get the blood flow out of there that way then limit the capacity to heal simply because I want to throw a pack of ice on there. But if I wanted to say the number one reason why I don't ice is related to the lymphatic system. If you don't know what the lymphatic system is, the lymphatic system is basically the way I describe it to my clients is it's like our garbage system. It's our disposal. It is a system of interstitial fluid that is basically when we're done with a fluid, blood whatever the excess fluid is, the lymphatic system is what picks that up, takes it towards, we have lymphatic ducts, they're in your armpit, in your groin, behind your knee, in your medial ankle, up in your neck. And again, this is our disposal system. So all those points take up to lymphatic nodes, eventually gets processed through our our body and we get expelled of the, the excess fluid. The most key component of this lymphatic system, because it's probably the most important way to get rid of swelling, is that it is a passive system. What do I mean by that? There is no active pumping of the lymphatic system. Meaning, like your arteries, your veins, there is an active contractile component to it that helps circulate the blood. Like we have our heart, heart pumps, pumps fluid out the veins or pumps fluid out the arteries, returns via the veins. There is none of that action in your lymphatics your lymphatics are a pressure-based system, meaning the only way the fluid can move in there is by doing active movement, right? So if I contract a muscle, that muscle puts pressure on the lymphatic tubes right next to it. It will create pressure like squeezing a ketchup bottle that will pump that fluid up the chain, usually has to go against gravity, and return to our disposal system if we're putting ice on the structure that is inflamed post-operative we are gonna be reducing circulation to the area so we're gonna be limiting healing but probably the hardest thing you're gonna be doing is you're limiting blood flow but you're actually also limiting the ability for that flow to go into the lymphatic system so if you're using high dosage high frequency icing you're actually going to be limiting the ability to get rid of swelling Right, That might be kind of counterintuitive, right? You think ice, I'm going to keep fluid from getting there, which it does, which I said limits healing, but probably equally as important is when you're putting ice on there, you're going to be limiting the ability for that swelling to pump out of the region of emphasis. So for lymphatics, there's some tricks you can do to kind of get it going, but it's the same principle of any sort of tissue healing uh, cascade where you want to find that low load, high volume movement that you can be doing all the time, every day, as frequently as you can to pump in new fluid, but again, pump the fluid through the lymphatics. You know, tools like a, a Mark Pro, a Power Dot, any sort of ESTEM machine where you're doing light kind of contractions, I love, I think they're great. You kind of put on this low intensity mode where you hardly feel it, it's kind of like a tickle, and you watch a movie for two or three hours and it's just pumping the whole time. Other tricks is something like called uh, kinesio tape. There's a bunch of different versions, but you can do kinesio tape very gently on the tissue. That kinesio tape will create almost like a lifting of the the skin, which will reduce pressure on the lymphatic system, the arteries, and whatnot, and often can facilitate lymphatic uh, return, lymphatic soft tissue mobilization, where you're doing the most gentle soft tissue along the line of the lymphatics to get rid of that. Interstitial fluid and that kind of gunky stuff that we got sitting around. But again, if I want to come back to the whole point of this podcast, is why am I not icing? I am going to limit the ability of swelling to get removed. I'm going to limit the ability of healing to come to the region of emphasis. And I'm often going to lead to. Uh, inhibition of the muscle group right if I don't use it I lose it if I'm constantly icing and I'm not moving the joint and it becomes static and cold I'm gonna have a more restricted soft tissue I'm gonna have more restricted joint capsule and I'm gonna lose that neuromuscular control of the joint of emphasis so I'm trash-talking ice because I think it gets overused but everything has a role If you're listening to any sort of podcast, reading any sort of material, and it's far-winged one way or the other, it's probably not right. The middle ground's always correct, and I just think we need to start pivoting more to that middle ground on ice. There's a role, pain management, that acute injury right away, numb up the tissue, but don't use it for more than 10 minutes, and try to get rid of it and facilitate movement as quick as you can. Hopefully that explains some things. I'm good light on things. Uh, Reach out with any questions more fun content to come, guys, and really appreciate your time. Have a good day. How's it going, everyone? Hope everyone's doing well. Starting to enjoy summer coming. Hopefully COVID in your area is coming down. Starting to get back into the groove of things. Got some vacations and fun stuff planned ahead. Uh, Today is going to be our discussion-based podcast. And what I want our discussion today to be, which was a requested topic, was the concept of goal setting. And I think we kind of get beat this in the head a little bit. But I want to put on some different perspective and lights on uh, different types of goals. Not necessarily how to write a goal, but what are realistic expectations or goals for yourself and your training or for your clients. Um, Before we get into that uh just released a podcast with Dr. Roth who's an orthopedic uh uh sorry a pediatric orthopedist meaning he does and handles a lot of the youth athletes or the youth and really we kind of discussed what are scenarios where you would be a proponent of surgery what are scenarios where maybe you would try to hold off on surgery because it is a difficult population obviously with high loads little rest and a lot of overuse injuries so ideally surgery's not the case but uh, Dr. Roth and I really sit down and break that down uh, really interesting podcast and then we have another fun one coming up where we do like a roundtable discussion and so I am the NSCA Oregon State Director meaning the National Strength and Conditioning Association and I help kind of run the Oregon chapter. Uh, we do have hopefully an in-person live event be happening this fall still working out the details. But what I did is I kind of recruited my board members, and there's uh, four or five of us uh, from all aspects of the strength and performance world, and we sit down and just answer questions that we got from uh, members of the Oregon board as well as just kind of the Northwest region. So kind of a cool roundtable discussion with some smart guys, so hopefully uh, stay tuned for that and you enjoy that. But let's get into the topic I hand today, so goal setting. So, right, when you hear goal setting, you kind of like roll your eyes and you think, okay, I need to make my SMART goal that's objective and time-based and so forth. And that's not necessarily what I want to talk about, even though it is obviously an important thing, particularly for medical documentation, but also to hold yourself accountable. What I want to talk about are what are some maybe objective measures and in some instances time-based expectations for different goals than we have in regards to health and wellness, right? So, you know, the goal that you're gonna have for maybe improving breathing efficiency is gonna be different than the goal that you have to improve your uh, squat force capacity or your vertical jump or your glute med strength or so forth. It takes, you know, roughly six to eight weeks to see true force output changes in regards to strength. Within usually about a two to four week window, you will see neurological changes in regards to strength. So you'll see improved initiation, uh, improved muscle recruitment, meaning they'll be able to produce force quicker which will look like they're getting stronger, but to truly get true hypertrophy muscle strength, where you can move heavy load on a repeated basis, it takes time to be able to do that. And the rough guess there is about a six to eight week window, and that's just to notice changes. There's room for improvement, Launch longer than that. Uh, Again, neurological changes, where you'll see different changes in recruitment patterns, usually more of like a two to four week window. Um, But when it comes to mobility, ideally you can see that pretty instantaneous. So if you're a provider of some sort, that's your go-to on your first session or two is figure out where their motion is lost and restore it right away. That will help you get buy-in with your clients, uh, but also help you dictate that you are going down the correct path and to follow through with it. The reason why mobility changes usually happen pretty quick is because they're not often from true articular dysfunctions, meaning that there's something stuck in the joint and that's why it doesn't move. Usually mobility issues stem from weakness a joint that is overloaded can't handle what it's being asked to do is a joint that's weak and usually it becomes guarded so the range of motion loss is more neurological or soft tissue based where again if you can retrain the movement pattern get the brain and the system to figure out what you're asking to move more efficiently you can get instantaneous changes and obviously changes pretty well within the first one to two weeks. So when I'm sitting down with my clients and we're doing an evaluation, you know, my first spiel that I say is, okay, here's, here's what's going on here. You're like three pillars of dysfunction, your mechanical, uh, what like strength or neuromuscular control is lost and how that's influencing your function. I then try to help them set expectations. So usually what I'll say is if I don't see changes in some significant fashion within the first two weeks, then we're not doing something right. Now, if we have a post-op case, or there's obviously exceptions to that, but if you're having back pain, if you're recovering from an ankle sprain, if you have shoulder impingement, you should have changes within two weeks. If you're seeing somebody, have been seeing them for longer than that, and you don't have changes, something's not going right, and you're spinning the wheel. And so I try to lay that expectation from them. We should have changes within two weeks, or maybe you can run further before pain starts. When you have pain, is less severe, less frequent. And then I say I want you, again, depending on this case, more in that six to eight week window to be closer to that hundred percent mark. Um, and sometimes people don't want to hear that cause they want results quickly. Um, and I think that's often why people bias towards surgical intervention. One, it's a little bit more cut and dry. You get what's going to happen. But two is people think it's a quick fix. I have surgery. This is fixed for the rest of my life and I move on. But rarely that is the case. Anytime you have surgery, you're worse off than you were before the surgery. But ideally, the reason why you're doing surgery is because your status rate before surgery was so poor, you weren't even at your pre-injury level. So there is a role for surgery, but again, it's usually not the end all, end all, be all. So let's maybe break this down into a couple uh, segments or specific topics. So if we think about maybe a pillar of breathing, posture, uh, inhibition, right? So If you stand like crud, you breathe horribly, you're inevitably going to have muscles that are not firing like they should be, and you've got this poorly functioning state. How quickly can you expect to see changes in regards to breathing efficiency, either your O2 sat, uh, maybe if you're using balloons to resist breathing, they can breathe better against resistance, uh, maybe their breath count you can extend. Uh, there's some, a lot of good ways to, to track that, but breathing in regards to posture, you should see changes again fairly quickly. So if you address what's stiff, wake up what's asleep, and teach them how to sit, stand, push, pull, carry, lunge, so forth, again, that's like within that two week window that I want to see changes, so pretty darn quickly. Um, Let's think about maybe another example. Um, What about something like a segmental dysfunction? Let's say you have an L4, L5 disc issue. You don't have a full-blown prolapse where you're like having bowel and bladder issues, but you've got significant sciatica, pain down the leg. You've got a hot disc. What are your expectations or how do you set goals there? So usually that's a little multivariable, right? So if I have a nerve thing and then I have a local tissue thing, they're going to have two different healing cascades. So what I usually say there when you have a nerve thing is I first wanna see your pain centralized. So if you have pain down your leg, I need that pain to go up into your butt and eventually into your back. I then wanna see relatively quickly changes in movement. If you're restricted in a toe touch, restricted in a rotation, uh, maybe you're restricted in a hip hinge, I wanna see pretty quick changes with that within two weeks. So I wanna see the intensity and the frequency of the nerves to change within two weeks and I want movement patterns better within two weeks. Now, if you have a true injury to your disc, research has shown that it takes at least a year for it to recover and pretty much all discs do recover, right? So again, you wouldn't rush and have surgery unless you've got a true nerve entrapment that you need to reduce pressure on. Um, But for them maybe to get into a higher level activity after an acute disc issue such as a swing, a clean, a box jump, a return to sport, that's probably going to be more in that 6 to 8 week time frame. That's going to allow that disc to at least have the ability to reduce an inflammation, restore what's shut off or weak, get some proper stability around kind of the hips and thoracic spine and start to reintegrate movement patterns. So a hot disc, 2 weeks significant reduction in pain, 6 to 8 weeks return to play. Now, when I say return to activities and I put a time frame on it, those are guesses, right? meaning I don't hold myself or the client accountable to that date. I try to work off of what's called a criterion-based progression where you could be at 22 weeks out from surgery. If you can't get close to touching the ground like a standing toe touch, I'm not going to tell you to pick up a heavy weight off the ground. You should have some basic criteria to progress to so you're not guessing you're being objective with your assessments and return-to-play criteria let's maybe talk about goal setting in regards to like a movement screen. Right. So I'm not, I do use the FMS. I usually do it more in the mass screening process. Like I have 15 athletes I need to screen. I'm not breaking it down into significant detail in regards to like an individual one-on-one performance evaluation. Um, but I will use that. I will use squats. I will use rotations. I will use like a trunk stability push up. I will use a single leg squat, but if we're doing maybe more of like a functional grading, how long or what are realistic goals to improve that? Right? So I think it all, again, depends on how you're assessing. So by that, I mean, if you're just looking at one or two single leg squats to like a set depth, maybe a 60 degree knee flexion angle, um, you should see changes pretty quickly, right? So if you get something moving that is stiff, all the same stuff, get something that's inhibited and weak and firing, you should be able to see a single-leg squat change pretty quickly within that two-week window. Now, if you're looking at a single-leg bound, if you're looking at... um any other jump, cut, measure, that's going to take more time because that's when you got to build strength. So I think if you kind of have those two visuals as good visuals for you is almost like a reduce pain, improve mobility, improve neuromuscular control two to three weeks to improve functional changes where you can do something with high loads or do something for long periods of time. That's that six to eight-week time frame. If you're working off a really poor base where they can't, simply do a decent body weight squat and they're trying to get to maybe a higher level activity like a snatch then you got to break it down into like phases where first can you do a body weight squat then can we do <clears throat> a front squat then can we do a back squat then can we do an overhead squat then can we get into a snatch and each one of those phases might be a two to four week window so there's just some general good criteria to think about progressing So we should know our tissue healing. If we have an acute tissue issue, how long does it take to recover? We should know, which again, depending on the tissue, can be something in that six to eight week mark for like a muscle strain or a ligament strain, or again, for that disc or ACL graft, it might be one to two years. So again, know your evidence. So your goal setting should be based on tissue healing It should be based on neuromuscular changes. Again, somewhere in that two to four week range, you should see changes in neuromuscular recruitment. And then you've got to think about goal setting in regards to function. So where are they currently functioning? How long is it going to take to get back to that? And then what are their future functional goals? So again, if they have a low base in function to begin and they have a high functional goal, you obviously got to break that down over a longer period of time. So now we have some just good ways to think about breaking out different goals, some general time frames. Again, don't work off a time, just use it as setting a basic framework. What are we doing to try to objectify things, right? So if you're assessing joint mobility and things like that, you can objectify with like a goniometer measurement or end feel, but how do we go about objectifying strength? So I do that a couple ways. So I do that via function. So can you do, excuse me, 20 single leg squats to a 60 degree knee flexion angle just to have like a set standard. Maybe I'm looking at um, strength in the capacity of like isolated strength. So more table-based strength assessments, your traditional manual muscle testing, glute med versus hamstring versus glute max versus hip flexion. And there what I'll use is a handheld dynamometer, which has its limitations. It's not going to pick up initiation. It's not going to pick up endurance, but it does give you a force production. And so I will assess that side to side. So if you have glute meat on one side is 10 pounds, the other side is 25 pounds, that's significant. I also set that based on your body weight. So glute meat should roughly be about 20% of your body weight. Glute max should be about 40 to 50% of your body weight. Hamstring is usually about 25 to 30% of your body weight. Those are just general evidence-based studies that show that if these people met these metrics, they have a reduced injury risk. So it's not the end-all, be-all, but again, gives you some criteria to work off of. But I think when we're assessing strength, we should assess it on the table to see isolation. We should assess it functionally, such as maybe like a single leg squat, a single leg deadlift, and then you got to take it into like the real world. So if they're a ball court athlete, maybe you're going to look at a box jump height, maybe you're gonna look at a deceleration, maybe you're gonna look at a lateral bound. If it is more of a powerlifting athlete, CrossFit athlete, maybe your best metric is their deadlift one rep maxed or three rep max or their back squat three rep max. If you're more for the endurance athlete of looking at running, right? So sometimes the best objective measure is the act itself. So can they run two miles pain-free at a conservative pace? Can they run five miles pain-free with hills at a moderately 80% pace. So you've got your isolation, you've got your kind of like functional things in regards to maybe the PT side of things, and then you have your more sports specific function. And so we should use these objective measures in your evaluations and in your goal setting. So we talked through some examples of maybe how to set goals for different injuries. We talked about maybe different pillars of goal setting. We talked about some objective measures for goal setting. I think, again, just to summarize it, you should be using the goal setting process for both your evaluation, your plan of care development, your client buy-in, but also for you as the provider or trainer to ensure that what you're doing is working right. You don't want to be training somebody for 12 weeks and not reassess where they're at on things and have any idea of what they're doing is getting better or worse. You want to try to take the guesswork out of it. And there is a slew of different cool, fun, techie ways of assessing movement and uh, function. And I think there's some really valid options, but really keep it simple. You really don't need all these bells and whistles. Find your battery of tests, utilize them, tweak them, improve them, cater them to the individual because each individual has different goals and expectations. So anyway, I hope that was helpful. Hopefully it can help you develop maybe a goal that you're working on or help you in your communication with your clients. All right, guys, really appreciate the time. And again, uh, pay attention to the upcoming NSCA Oregon Roundtable podcast, which will be posted as well. And please reach out, DM, email, uh, DM on Capacity PT's Instagram, email at nickhcapacitypt.com. At um, let us know if there's some other topics you'd like us to guess, uh, discuss or uh, any other questions that are on your mind. All right, guys, appreciate it and take care. What's up everybody, back for a discussion-based podcast. We're going to be talking about ways to isolate the quad. Um, Before we get into the details of it, just updating on things. uh, Some more fun podcasts to come. We're going to be doing, have some guests on talking about speed and power development. Um, Probably some guests coming on, Uh, some fun ACL content to come, as well as some more discussions on some return to play measures as well as some general fitness and wellness tips in regards to kind of building your own fitness plan or helping program design for your clients. Um, But stay tuned. Again, every two weeks uh, on Sundays, new podcasts will be posted. One a month will be ideally with an interview that's worthwhile and interesting for you guys, as well as one is on a discussion that was requested by the audience so far. So what we're going to be talking about today is the ways to isolate the quad. When it comes to rehab, particularly post-operative rehab, the quad is king, right? You have knee surgery, the cascade that develops is you have tissue healing, swelling, and lack of movement. That combination of lack of movement, swelling, and healing leads to inhibition of the quad. The quad then gradually becomes atrophied, becomes weak, and you lose the neuromuscular control of the quad. You can do things in the open chain, closed chain, etc., to try to build leg strength. But more often than not, the body's gonna have creative ways to get around utilization of the quad to achieve the functional movement. So you might be able to squat perfectly, squat with load, that doesn't necessarily mean your quad's driving it. So I wanted to go through some ways that you can try to do your best to isolate your quad to get quad-specific strength. You know, and most often in the health and in the fitness world, we talk about you know hip hinging, we talk about the glutes, we talk about the posterior chain. And in more, most aspects, most people have posterior chain weakness. We sit all day, we have these repetitive, prolonged, poor postures, we live in these more extended arched positions, and we live in these compressed positions. All that leads to is generally guarding and weakness on the posterior chain from your glutes, to your calves, to your hamstrings, to your posterior core, including your multifidus if i've never seen someone and i'm going to start training and building a program for you that's probably where i'm going to start some sort of posterior chain and hip hinge progression but the topic today i want to go through is quads one obviously the quads are incredibly important they play a huge role in eccentric control of the lower extremities so stopping putting on the brakes change of direction it is your primary shock absorber for your leg particularly your knee so if you do not have quad strength you're typically going to develop patellofemoral issues Um, You can develop shin splints, and your quads are obviously a big force generator for just overall performance, including sprinting and running. I think most of us understand that the quad, the four muscles, vastus medialis, lateralis, intermedius, um, and the rectus femoris, we understand that there's four muscles. We understand their function, but we tend to lose perspective on how uh, how and when they're weak and how we train them. So let's go over it. So let's say we would start with two different case scenarios. Let's go over the first case scenario, which you're in the rehab setting is probably gonna be the more common thing. But even if you're in more of the sports performance, strength and conditioning side of things, you're gonna be seeing people who are post-operative even if they're years after the fact that have these issues. But if I'm thinking about ways to start to isolate the quad for a post-op patient, you know, the acute phase is doing more open chain neurological re-education. So by that, you know, you, the gold standard old school way of just a simple quad set is obviously a great place to start. With a quad set, what you really want to see, though, is you got to see that patellar glide or that superior patellar migration, and you have to see the dissension or extension of the knee. You can get the knee to lock out, the knee to go flat, but if you don't see that patella move, they're not using their quad. Another great way to kind of work on the open chain is like a prone knee lockout. We're replicating almost pseudo-closed chain with your like toes on the ground as you lock out, which will start to incorporate some soleus strength. If you did not know, the soleus is a secondary knee extender, particularly in the closed kinetic chain as it pulls the tibia back posteriorly. So it's a great way to start to incorporate some of that almost heel strike, partial weight bearing control of knee extension in the quad. And then eventually I'll turn them around and do like a seated straight leg raise. Again, these are all drills that are introductory, not best for your like functional level patients, but more your post-op people. That straight leg raise, I like to do them in a seated position and the hip relatively flexed. So you take the rectus out of it and you're gonna bias more of the other quad muscles, which are usually more of the issue. But let's say, okay, you've got them off the table, they have knee extension, they've got good quad, now you need to take it into function. Before you can really worry about, you know, is this a quad-specific movement, you first got to be able to teach basic functional movement. So can they do a box squat with appropriate hinging, appropriate knee to foot a hip alignment, and can they do it with load, with repetition, and with volume? Once they can achieve the basic parameters of a decent squat and they have the mobility to achieve that from the hip and knee and ankle all being able to flex and being able to maintain a somewhat upright trunk, then we can start to play around with ways to bias the quad. So what are some good quad exercises? One that I love that I've been using a lot lately is a Spanish squat. Uh, I would love to say I know why it's called a Spanish squat, but it is, I should do some research on that. But a Spanish squat basically what you're doing is you're promoting a vertical tibia doing a squat based motion usually we use a vertical tibia or an upright shin with more of a hip hinge dominated movement which is like a deadlift but if we promote a vertical shin with a vertical trunk that's going to really force the quadriceps to kind of hold the shin in place and it's a great way to force your quad to work So by that, what I'll do if I'm in a squat rack, I'll put like a thick band in the squat rack and rest the superior posterior tibia on the band, which then gives me two things. It gives me something to promote that vertical shin as I go into the upright trunk squat, but it also gives me a little proprioceptive feedback to force terminal knee extension as I come back up from the squat. So I'll do two-legged, I'll do kickstand, I'll do single leg Spanish squats, and I'll do them with a lot of volume. These people just get an intense quad burn and super awesome way to isolate or try to force quad work into more squat dominated patterns, trying to take some of the hamstrings and glute out of the equation. I think something at least in the rehab world that we've started to shy away from is open kinetic chain quad work. Um, you know, there's research late 80s, or sorry, in the 90s that really showed that, you know, open chain quad work puts a whole lot of strain on the patella femoral joint. I think they did it back in the day with like the old knee extension machines and it showed compressive and shearing force on the patella. And I think it does do that. I'm not saying that's not the case, but if you load it correctly and load it with the appropriate volume, you can get a whole bunch of awesome quad work. Um, and if you think about it, the open kinetic chain is the really the only way of doing open chain knee extension that you can do a quad isolated movement. There's no way the ham can get involved, there's no way the glutes can get involved if you're sitting and doing it. So in the clinic, you know, or the gym, what I'll do is often like BFR, blood flow restricted open chain knee extensions and do two or three sets of 20 to 30 reps and just really burn out that quad and open chain extension. Also do manually resisted open chain, so I can change the angle of the load based on the shin angle, which will reduce stress into the patella. But long story short is don't be afraid to do open chain work, because you'll get a lot of benefit out of it. And it's a great way to do kind of active rest between different exercises to get quad work while you're working on maybe some deadlift patterns or some dynamic balance work. All right, so Spanish squats, open kinetic chain squats. Another way I like to isolate the quad, is backwards walking. So with the backwards walking, we are gonna get a little bit of soleus involvement, which I love, but again, you're gonna get that almost eccentric terminal knee extension, and you're gonna force that pattern of using more of a quad dominant pattern with gait. So what I'll do is I'll have a sled of some sort, they'll either be pulling it with their arms or attached to their waist, and I'll have them walk backwards. I'll have them do... Gosh, usually I'll time it in intervals, about a two to three minute interval, or I'll measure the distance, but it's a large volume of retro or backwards walking, working on controlling load and movement for longer periods of time. It's also a great way to train uh, like tibial rotation and pelvic rotation, where if people have limitations in their quad, and limitations of controlling like the heel strike of gait, they'll often cheat with rotations of their foot and hip, so you can kind of cue them on keeping that linear alignment with the retro-walking. Alright, two more quad examples so you can start playing around with them. The other way I love working on the quad in the closed chain is replicating triple extension. Triple extensions: hip, knee, ankle extension. So usually I'll do this in either a hands on the wall, wall lean position or I'll have the involved leg on the ground and the non-involved leg on like a step in front of it. But the idea is can you maintain full terminal knee extension as you go into a full plantar flex position? So it looks like a calf raise, it is a calf raise, but you're really focusing on the knee extension. Once they come down from the calf raise, they let the knee flex a little bit, go back into terminal knee extension, raise up onto the toe. So you're getting calf work, but against that ability to sink your quad into the kinetic chain with getting your hip calf, and quad, all controlling extension at the same time. Sometimes they'll put a band behind their knee to resist the extension to kind of load it and see if they can control it. You then can start being dynamic and see if they can change it with speed and kind of snap side to side with your legs, seeing if they can maintain that extension. Um, But another great way to try to incorporate quad work into the kinetic chain in a way that they can tell if they're doing it or not because they can see if they're locking or unlocking their knee. And the last example, and there's many more, but I love using the box squat. So with the box squat, uh, one the box is there to help cue form, but it also is almost a way of doing like the Spanish squat, where it usually cues more of an upright shin angle and more of an upright trunk angle. When we're squatting, the more vertical our trunk is, in general, the more quad activation we're gonna get. The more we hinge forward, the more glued posterior chain. The issue people have is they lack thoracic extension. They lack the hip and trunk stability to maintain that upright trunk. So he's go into those hinge positions and they really struggle to access the quad. With the box squat, which I love to do and maybe more of the, the rehab setting with like a safety bar or a goblet just to help promote some of that thoracic block stacking over the pelvic block. Um, but I'll use the box squat. I'll get the depth either parallel or just below parallel. They got to have the motion to do that. And so by that what i mean is they will get to the box i'll cue them to have a really wide foot angle which helps sorry like uh, foot width so their feet are really wide wider than shoulder width significantly which will load the hips in a way in regards to the hip flexion range but it helps keep that vertical shin so if you have wide feet vertical shin and go with a safety bar or a goblet squat you can get awesome quad strength and you can load it a whole lot more than any of the drills i was talking about So this is probably where I'm trying to get to long term to do five sets of five, six sets of five, heavy load, box squats, and really just kind of tear apart the legs, but know that I'm biasing the quads with that functional movement. So hopefully those are some good ideas that you can start brainstorming with some open chain ideas, some lower level closed chain ideas, as well as some general postural cues to focus on if we want more of a quad emphasis. How can you tell if you're making a difference? So I usually measure quad girth. So I go about midpoint from the quad and measure the girth to see how we are side to side. There's obviously looking at other muscles as well, but a good basic way to do it. I'll do some open chain dynamometer testing of the quad to get more of a pounds of pressure. And obviously just looking at uh, general muscle activation with like neuromuscular tests, such as like a straight leg raise are some good general ways to get some Assessments. Um, again, hope you learned a couple things. Uh, feel free to comment, ask questions, reach out. Uh, more fun content to come. And hope you guys are all doing well. Take care. Hey, everybody. Again, it's been a break on podcasting. Uh, as I've said, another podcast, several good reasons. Business is growing. Life is crazy summer is crazy having fun so lots of different things going on but uh again a much needed break from podcasting but uh really enjoy you sticking around and i know more fun contents to come today's going to be more of a discussion-based podcast where you get to hear me ramble and give you my thoughts on everything um, related to wellness movement rehab training Um, we have some more fun interviews coming up we have uh, Perry Nicholson talking about vagus nerve and lymphatics. We have Dr. Askew coming to talk about um, foot ankle dysfunction and kind of the orthopedic approach to foot ankle dysfunction and how he manages patient care as he's a foot ankle specialist. Uh, and even some more fun interviews coming down the road with uh, physical therapist Andrew Millett um, out of the Boston area, who is the PT for, at Eric Cressy's Sports Performance, talking about upper quarter athletes and overhead athletes. So more monologues, more fun content. Uh, please follow, share, review. The more we can have people listen to this, ideally, the more people we can help. And that's you know the number one value that we have with this podcast and just our business overall. So what I want to be talking about today is basically the topic of it is calf Achilles pain, Think about your back. And the reason why I want to bring that up is, I don't know if it's summertime, where I've seen quite a few people with heel pain, Achilles pain, uh, calf pain, calf tears, um, where, again, I'm not too sure if that's just because it's summertime and... People are running more, being more active. I'm not sure if it's COVID related, where people are sitting on Zoom calls more, sitting at their desk more, and then going right into activity. And some of that postural inhibition, postural uh, lack of mobility is driving it. Um, But for whatever the cause is, I've been seeing more of this distal, lower extremity, itises, calf strains, swelling. So. One of the biggest trends I've seen is I look at these people, and your first inclination is okay. Let's let's look at their dynamic dorsiflexion or ankle bend. Uh, you initially think okay, they've got some restriction back there. Let's test, and you test, and you look at both their dorsiflexions, and you actually see that the involved one or the injured one, quote unquote, actually has just as much motion, if not more motion. So immediately you rule out that the issue is coming from a lack of dorsiflexion, you can also test plantar flexion as well. Um, you maybe do another range of motion test and you wanna make sure that they have, you know, good first ray extension, good plantar fascial mobility. You notice that there is a restriction there where you can say there's a different side to side, but by no means does it come off as like an asterisk sign where the limitation in some of that plantar foot mobility is so bad that you think it would be causing a lot of Achilles swelling you kind of maybe if we take a step back and start with the subjective, the subjective doesn't necessarily correlate to an Achilles-specific pathology. Usually that correlates or the scenario you see if it's truly load-dependent to the Achilles is a change in shoe wear, a dramatic increase in run volume, a dramatic increase in maybe plyometric training, box jumps, uh, sprinting, sleds, whatever it may be you go through this objective, nothing's really changed there. And they'll often complain of heel pain, Achilles pain, uh, even with sitting first thing in the morning, Um, obviously like not so bad during the run, but post run. Where again, if it's truly a local Achilles pathology, it's gonna be load dependent. I load the Achilles, it hurts. But it's truly like a calf tear from a specific calf-loaded movement. Like, I don't know, a high-speed change of direction that loads the calf. You can see it, um, but calf tears are usually more common in the recreational athlete versus the professional or you know higher-level athlete. You don't usually see uh, whatever Jimmy the pro soccer player tear their calf that much. It's usually more hamstrings uh, and like knee ligamentous injury. So it's very rare that you tear the calf solely from a sport-specific movement. Usually there's contributing factors. And that's kind of the whole point of this podcast, right? So we've got a calf strain, we've got an Achilles issue, we have some swelling in that distal extremity. What, what's the true driver of it? What's the true cause? You're more often than not, again, I'm not saying all the time, but typically in the recreational or the more average Joe, that is stemming from something going on in the back or up the kinetic chain. And so what you'll notice, do this on your next person, uh, test their hip extension range. I bet you it's limited. Test their glute strength. Uh, the typically ways we'll do that is like a single leg bridge test where they can hold one leg bridge, they can hold it with their glute recruited, minimal hamstring, low back, and hold it for a good period of time with good form. Maybe you're going to be doing manual muscle testing. and you could test like a edge of bed hip extension, a prone extension, maybe an extension with external rotation, manual... Uh, strength testing, uh, I guarantee on that same side you'll notice weakness. You then maybe look at global fascial restrictions like uh, toe touch, uh, active straight leg raise, um, maybe just a supine hip flexion range, and you'll probably notice all on that involved side they have general fascial restrictions. One other kind of cool thing to see is if you know your, if you're a PT or whatever you're saying is and you know your tomes is usually you'll find myotomes that correlate. So when they have calf issues, right, that's gastroxoleus, usually L5, S1, they'll have other inhibition or weakness on those same patterns. So that would be great toe extension, ankle eversion, hip abduction. Usually all those will be weak on that same side. So you think, okay, the hip's not moving. The hip's weak. We maybe have... Uh, facilitation, neurological driver of some of this distal weakness. And then obviously you can get into your true lumbopelvic exam and you'll probably notice some range of motion, mechanical issues in their low back and pelvis. Point of this is you are going to be doing your service, uh, your client a disservice if you go and do manual therapy on their Achilles, teach them gastroxoleus stretches and strengthen their calf. That's why I think some of the eccentric research is so convoluted is, yeah, eccentrics for your gastrocnemius and Achilles are beneficial. You're creating blood flow, circulation, strength, load. It's important. But, you know, they used to say eccentrics are the best. Now they say isometrics are the best. I guarantee in a few years they'll say concentrics are the best. But really the reason why it's so convoluted is you're treating the symptom rather than the cause. So some people will work, some people it won't. You need to obviously load the tissue and get the inflamed tissue better, but you've got to get up that kinetic chain. So again, the next time you see someone walk into your clinic, like, you see foot ankle issues, or particularly on the posterior chain of the foot ankle, think about their back. In regards to the foot ankle, what you'll typically see is more of a medial bias to the Achilles issues or to the calf issues. And a lot of that stems from compensation in the foot. So usually they'll be hanging out on that medial calcaneus, so that kind of pronated, if you want to use that word, flattened heel, you'll notice some midfoot issues, you maybe notice the foot's kind of twisted out, or externally rotated, all those things not only, um, all those things what they do is they create more of a medial bias to loading the Achilles, so you're gonna typically notice issues there. So when you get into the Achilles itself, again this is secondary or not the driver but does need to be addressed, is make sure you're working on Achilles side bend, the sheath movement, decompression of the Achilles underneath its underneathing structures, as well as the kind of general fascial band of the Achilles insertion along all aspects of that posterior medial and lateral uh, calcaneus. All right. Hopefully that was somewhat beneficial. If you need some more info, feel free to reach out. But again, gastroc Achilles, address it. Definitely appease your your patient or your client by showing that you care about it and recognize it. But think, gosh, the sooner I can get into this hip and low back, the sooner I can get the fascial and nerve mobility better and get control of triple extension, hip, knee, ankle extension, the better the long term results are. All right. More fun content to come. Have a good day. Hey everyone, back here again, another discussion-based podcast. Uh, This is, again, the Optimized Capacity Podcast. My name is Nick, and today or on these discussion-based podcasts, we review a topic, try to get in-depth with the big goal of, again, trying to have you leave with some practical advice, either if you're a trainer or a coach or an individual with limitations. Hopefully you can pick up something that you can apply right away to improve your movement, reduce pain, maybe improve your program design or your long-term like wellness plan. Um, <clears throat> the topic that I want to talk about today are warning signs. Warning signs that you have significant movement issues where if you keep blowing off the warning signs, inevitably something's going to give or your issue is going to become significant enough where you're going to have to reduce activity, reduce volume, stop doing whatever you've been doing. Um, This can be tricky, right? So uh, usually I think this is a, a, a great cook statement is, you know, they use the screen as the vital signs of movements, the functional movement screen. So say what you want to say about the functional movement screen, yes, it doesn't predict injury, yes, it doesn't correlate to sports performance or athletic performance, but I think its biggest strength is it's a data point of movement that you can track. It gives you some form of objective way to track, either initiate or observe movement, and then track progress to changes in movement. Um, So, what I want to go over are some subjective, some more objective signs, as well as some activity related signs that, hey, you know, this isn't just an ache, uh, a strain inflammation and something that's going to build and make you worse. I think we're kidding ourselves if you think you're going to live life pain-free for the foreseeable future. Maybe if you're 12 or you're fairly young or you've been blessed with good movement, but for most of us, we have pain on some level somewhere in our body the majority of the time. The issue is not are you pain-free, but are you dysfunctional enough where you lack efficient movement, lack efficient strength or support, and can't hold yourself into decent postures. Um, so to initiate that, what are some symptoms that are okay to push through that you know you're not going to turn a yellow light into a red light and really have issues? Uh, so, you know, the general rule of thumb is pressure, throb, ache, um, even a little bit of restricted motion where you can't get as deep as you would normally get or get as high as you would normally get. Those are all things of, yes, you probably have some sort of dysfunction going on, but not a dysfunction where if you press through it, it's gonna lead to significant issues. If you're doing an activity and you have, hopefully this makes sense, like a sharp pain, a pain that's shooting where it starts in your butt and shoots down your leg, If you have a pain that persists once you relax, so if you're squatting, something kinda aches, hurts, you finish the squat and it continues to ache, hurt, Um, those are all signs that whatever you're doing is probably inflammatory, and if you keep doing it, that inflammation is gonna build and truly become a dysfunction. Um, The other one is if normally, let's just talk about knees, normally you can get your heel to your butt and bend your knee to full end range flexion. If you do your workout, finish your workout, and now you've lost your knee range of motion and it lasts that way for 10, 15 minutes. Likely what you're doing again is inflammatory. So, sharp shooting, uh, almost like ridiculous pain, pain that uh, persists even after you're done with the activities. Those are all warning signs that, hey, whatever you're pushing through is probably not something you want to continue to push through. Um, what are some then maybe subjective things you might hear or complain of that are warning signs of like, hey, this isn't going as well as it should. One would be vital signs, like literal vital signs. So if your blood pressure is constantly elevated, if you track heart rate variability and it's constantly elevated or variable, um, if your stress levels throughout the roof, those are all indications that something either systemically or locally is dysfunctional. Because it doesn't tell you what, but it tells you that your body is fighting something and trying to counter it. And that might be you're not sleeping enough, but it can also be that you have uh, degenerative disc disease and a nerve impingement and your body's kind of fighting to stabilize around that dysfunction. Other subjective complaints of something that's more than just the general ache is the individual has been doing whatever workout program for four to six weeks, not getting stronger, not moving better, not improving their range of motion. That means that likely strength isn't the issue and there's something truly going on that's driving that, right? You can't strengthen dysfunction. So if you keep adding load to a dysfunctional segment and the body's not accommodating and improving, whatever is dysfunctional is severe enough where you just can't blow it off the other warning sign, subjectively you might hear is rest related pain i sit for a while my heel starts hurting um i wake up with pain in the morning um, the days i don't work out i have more pain than the days that i do work out the other subjective thing is a surgical history right so if you had a meniscectomy if you had a micro If you had a labral repair and you're getting a low grade throb and something that kind of persists with rest, you're not making progress in your training. Those are usually indicative that you still have some persistent dysfunction. One of the most prominent stats or research things shows that the best indicator of injury is previous injury. So even though the surgery might have healed, the trauma might have healed, doesn't mean they've necessarily regrained all their function and all the neuromuscular control range of motion of the joint. Um, So again, previous injury, pain at rest, significant change to vitals, those are all good subjective reports. that You probably have something more serious going on than just someone working out too much or just general aches and strains. So we we talked about activity-based measures. We talked about subjective-based measures. What are some objective things that if you have this going on, Again, it's probably not just tension, there's something more serious, again, a warning sign. So there's some general movements, right? You can break out every single joint in the body and find something that's stiff and try to validate that as limiting their deadlift or their run. But some general movement patterns that are indicative of some more significant dysfunction that can brew, are more of these, I call them like shotgun movements where they're testing many things at once that if you have a kink in your armor, are usually dysfunctional. One would be the toe touch. I don't care if you're 55 or five. I don't care if you've had surgery or not. Everybody should be able to somewhat touch their toes. That's usually an indication that if you can't, that you have some sort of stability issue going on that's your body's protecting itself and limiting posterior length or the ability to touch your toes. Uh, Another one should be, you should be able to get into a catcher squat. Obviously, if you're getting older, probably less of a possibility. But if you're 50 or younger, you should be able to let your heels come up off the ground, get into a really deep end range squat, and not have any issues. Not have hip pinching, knee issues, ankle issues. If you can't get there, you have a kink in your armor that's going to brew and eventually lead to an issue. The other one... are some general shoulder things. So one would be just like a sitting or standing abduction test. If you stay in pure abduction, where your arm's going sideways, not pitching forward, not pitching back, and you lean against a wall or you sit, and you can't almost get your arm all the way up to your ear, you have something going on in your upper quarter, your neck, your shoulder, the nerves, something's not moving well. And again, if you're gonna be doing a bunch of overhead work or push-ups or upper body things, eventually something's gonna give a warning sign. Toe touch, catcher squat, um, shoulder abduction. Another one would just be cervical rotation. So your spine is one unit. It moves as a unit even though there's different nerves that come off of it. Cervical rotation being significantly limited twisting one way or the other is a sign that there's something wrong either with your neck, with your spine, with your nerves, with your shoulder that are indicative of dysfunction. So those would all be just general warning signs. Obviously, you can break out into the intrinsics of things. But if you're a trainer, someone has some of those subjective complaints of pain at rest and then they're stressed, you've had them watch their touch their toes, but now their toe touch is half of what it used to be. You watch them breathe, and they're breathing through their neck and their upper chest. Um, Their squat forms reducing. Don't just blow that off to, hey, they maybe didn't sleep, or hey, they need more training. Try to step back and... Think about what's going on. Maybe you have a medical professional near you in the gym. Maybe they can kind of back you up and try to tease it out more. Maybe you have them start tracking their vitals. Maybe you use a screen of your own sort to see if you're making changes. But I think one of the biggest issues that we'll see is people have these warning signs and they just blow them up to aging or chalk them up to aging or whatever, running too much where we should try to appreciate these things. And being healthy and functional is a lifelong thing, not a short-term thing. So people work on things when they're in pain, but they kind of lose track of it. Inevitably, that happens. But you need to develop a lifelong wellness plan that incorporates basic movement patterns and ensuring you don't lose it, or eventually, again, something's gonna tick and something's going to explode and you're eventually going to have pain. You know, usually people think, hey, it's that one time they bent over and picked up the shoe and that's the reason why they back hurt, but it's the prior 10 years of blowing off warning signs, moving like crud, sitting all day, and that was just the final straw. You know, and the trend these days with COVID and Zoom meetings and things is people will sit for six hours, but they still want to work out as hard as they used to, so they'll go right into a high intensity workout or a long mileage run and they're basically running in this reduced state, this decrepit system. You get away with it for a little bit, but you gotta earn the right to run, earn the right to work out, and appreciate these warning signs. So again, hopefully you learned a thing or two. Um, Try to listen to your body, try to listen to your clients, track. You know, they say you can't train while you're not testing, so ideally you have some sort of intake, subjective, objective, regardless of your profession. Even if you're training individually, if you're trying to build a program or track progress, do your own self-test of testing your deadlift strength, your squat strength, whatever you want to be looking at, your one-minute mile. That way you can track progress and also see if you're regressing. Um, Appreciate you listening. Again, share, feedback. Appreciate all the support and more fun content to come. All right, take care. Hey, everyone, back here again, another discussion-based podcast. Uh, This is, again, the Optimized Capacity Podcast. My name is Nick, and today or on these discussion-based podcasts, we review a topic, try to get in-depth with the big goal of, again, trying to have you leave with some practical advice, either if you're a trainer or a coach or an individual with limitations. Hopefully you can pick up something that you can apply right away to improve your movement, reduce pain, Maybe improve your program design or your long-term like wellness plan. Um, <clears throat> the topic that I want to talk about today are warning signs. Warning signs that you have significant movement issues where if you keep blowing off the warning signs, inevitably something's going to give or your issue's going to become significant enough where you're going to have to reduce activity, reduce volume, stop doing whatever you've been doing. Um, this can be tricky, right? So, uh, usually I think this is a, a a great cook statement is, you know, they use the screen as the vital signs of movements, the functional movement screen. So say what you want to say about the functional movement screen. Yes, it doesn't predict injury. Yes, it doesn't correlate to sports performance or athletic performance. But I think its biggest strength is it's a data point of movement that you can track. It gives you some form of objective way to track either initiate or observe movement and then track progress to changes in movement. Um, so what I want to go over are some subjective, some more objective signs, as well as some activity-related signs that, hey, you know, this isn't just an ache Uh, a strain, inflammation, and something that's going to build and make you worse. I think we're kidding ourselves if you think you're going to live life pain-free for the foreseeable future. Maybe if you're 12 or you're fairly young or you've been blessed with good movement. But for most of us, we have pain on some level somewhere in our body the majority of the time. The issue is not are you pain-free, but are you dysfunctional enough where you lack efficient movement, lack efficient strength or support, and can't hold yourself into decent postures. Um, So to initiate that, what are some symptoms that are okay to push through that you know you're not going to turn a yellow light into a red light and really have issues? Uh, So, you know, the general rule of thumb is pressure, throb, ache, um even a little bit of restricted motion where you can't get as deep as you would normally get or get as high as you would normally get. Those are all things of, yes, you probably have some sort of dysfunction going on, but not a dysfunction where if you press through it, it's gonna lead to significant issues. If you're doing an activity and you have, hopefully this makes sense, like a sharp pain, a pain that's shooting where it starts in your butt and shoots down your leg, If you have a pain that persists once you relax, so if you're squatting, something kind of aches, hurts, you finish the squat and it continues to ache, hurt, um, those are all signs that whatever you're doing is probably inflammatory, and if you keep doing it, that inflammation is gonna build and truly become a dysfunction. Um, The other one is if normally, let's just talk about knees, normally you can get your heel to your butt and bend your knee to full end range flexion. If you do your workout, finish your workout, and now you've lost your knee range of motion and it lasts that way for 10, 15 minutes. Likely what you're doing again is inflammatory. So, sharp shooting, uh, almost like ridiculous pain, pain that uh, persists even after you're done with the activities, those are all warning signs that, hey, whatever you're pushing through is probably not something you want to continue to push through. Um, what are some then maybe subjective things you might hear or complain of that are warning signs of like, hey, this isn't going as well as it should. One would be vital signs, like literal vital signs. So if your blood pressure is constantly elevated, if you track heart rate variability and it's constantly elevated or variable, um, if your stress levels throughout the roof, those are all indications that something either systemically or locally is dysfunctional because it doesn't tell you what, but it tells you that your body is fighting something and trying to counter it. And that might be you're not sleeping enough, but it can also be that you have uh, degenerative disc disease and a nerve impingement and your body's kind of fighting to stabilize around that dysfunction. Other subjective complaints of something that's more than just the general ache is the individual has been doing whatever workout program for four to six weeks, not getting stronger, not moving better, not improving their range of motion. That means that likely strength isn't the issue and there's something truly going on that's driving that, right? You can't strengthen dysfunction. So if you keep adding load to a dysfunctional segment and the body's not accommodating and improving, Whatever is dysfunctional is severe enough where you just can't blow it off. The other warning sign subjectively you might hear is rest-related pain. I sit for a while, my heel starts hurting. Um, I wake up with pain in the morning. Um, the days I don't work out, I have more pain than the days that I do work out. The other subjective thing is a surgical history, right? So, if you had a meniscectomy, if you had a microdiscectomy, if you had a labral repair and you're getting a low-grade throb and something that kind of persists with rest, you're not making progress in your training, those are usually indicative that you still have some persistent dysfunction. One of the most prominent stats or research things shows that the best indicator of injury is previous injury. So even though the surgery might have healed, the trauma might have healed, doesn't mean they've necessarily regrained all their function and all the neuromuscular control range of motion of the joint. Um, So again, previous injury, pain at rest, significant change to vitals, those are all good subjective reports. that You probably have something more serious going on than just someone working out too much or just general aches and strains. So we we talked about activity-based measures. We talked about subjective-based measures. What are some objective things that if you have this going on, Again, it's probably not just tension, there's something more serious, again, a warning sign. So there's some general movements, right? You can break out every single joint in the body and find something that's stiff and try to validate that as limiting their deadlift or their run. But some general movement patterns that are indicative of some more significant dysfunction that can brew are more of these, I call them like shotgun movements where they're testing many things at once that if you have a kink in your armor, are usually dysfunctional. One would be the toe touch. I don't care if you're 55 or five. I don't care if you've had surgery or not. Everybody should be able to somewhat touch their toes. That's usually an indication that if you can't, that you have some sort of stability issue going on that's your body's protecting itself and limiting posterior length or the ability to touch your toes. Uh, another one should be, you should be able to get into a catcher squat. Obviously, if you're getting older, probably less of a possibility, but if you're 50 or younger, you should be able to let your heels come up off the ground, get into a really deep end range squat and not have any issues, not have hip pinching, knee issues, ankle issues. If you can't get there, you have a kink in your armor that's going to brew and eventually lead to an issue. The other one. Are Some general shoulder things. So one would be just like a sitting or standing abduction test If you stay in pure abduction where your arms going sideways not pitching forward not pitching back and you lean against a wall Or you sit and you can't almost get your arm all the way up to your ear You have something going on in your upper quarter your neck your shoulder the nerves something's not moving well And again, if you're gonna be doing a bunch of overhead work or push-ups or upper bodies things eventually something's gonna give a warning sign toe touch, catcher squat, um, shoulder abduction. Another one would just be cervical rotation. So your spine is one unit. It moves as a unit even though there's different nerves that come off of it. Cervical rotation being significantly limited twisting one way or the other is a sign that there's something wrong either with your neck, with your spine, with your nerves, with your shoulder that are indicative of dysfunction. So those would all be just general warning signs. Obviously, you can break out into the intrinsics of things, but if you're a trainer, someone has some of those subjective complaints of pain at rest and then they're stressed, you've had them watch their touch their toes, but now their toe touch is half of what it used to be. You watch them breathe and they're breathing through their neck and their upper chest. Um, Their squat forms reducing. Don't just blow that off to, hey, they maybe didn't sleep, or hey, they need more training. Try to step back and Think about what's going on. Maybe you have a medical professional near you in the gym. Maybe they can kind of back you up and try to tease it out more. Maybe you have them start tracking their vitals. Maybe you use a screen of your own sort to see if you're making changes. But I think one of the biggest issues that we'll see is people have these warning signs and they just blow them up to aging or chalk them up to aging or whatever, running too much where we should try to appreciate these things and being healthy and functional is a lifelong thing not a short-term thing so people work on things when they're in pain but they kind of lose track of it inevitably that happens but you need to develop a lifelong wellness plan that incorporates basic movement patterns and ensuring you don't lose it or eventually again something's going to tick and something's going to explode and you're eventually going to have pain you know, usually people think, "Hey, it's that one time they bent over and picked up the shoe and that's the reason why they back hurt." But it's the prior 10 years of blowing off warning signs, moving like crud, sitting all day, and that was just the final straw. You know, and the trend these days with COVID and Zoom meetings and things is people will sit for 6 hours, but they still want to work out as hard as they used to, so they'll go right into a high-intensity workout or a long-mileage run, and they're basically running in this reduced state this decrepit system you get away with it for a little bit but you got to earn the right to run earn the right to work out and appreciate these warning signs so again hopefully you learned a thing or two um try to listen to your body try to listen to your clients track you know they say you can't train what you're not testing so ideally you have some sort of intake subjective objective regardless of your profession even if you're training individually, if you're trying to build a program or track progress, do your own self-test of testing your deadlift strength, your squat strength, whatever you want to be looking at, your one-minute mile. That way you can track progress and also see if you're regressing. Um, appreciate you listening. Again, share, feedback, appreciate all the support and more fun content to come. All right, take care. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Back for another discussion-based podcast. Again, this is Nick Hagan with Capacity Performance Therapy doing the Optimize the Capacity podcast. What we're going to be talking about today are top five lessons I've learned through managing ACL clients. And so by that, I mean, what are some common trends, common issues I've seen, mistakes I've made that have taught me how to become a better management of acute mid late stage hcl rehab even blending into more of the performance sector of acl training and i think reese for myself and i imagine you guys are all this way too sometimes the best ways to learn are through failures and mishaps and make sure you don't do it again so just to set some standard expectations to lay the groundwork on some of these learning principles again for a tissue graph you got to give it at least a solid six to eight weeks before you do higher end eccentric loading um, you know, the standard return to play used to be six months, but the evidence these days is showing nine to 12 months. Any month after six months, your re- rate of re-rupture actually reduces by 17%. So the longer you can wait, the better your outcomes are. And <clears throat> obviously, there shouldn't be some sort of criterion-based return to play, not just a time-based. That just sets the foundations for kind of general ACL expectations. So what are some common mistakes I've done or issues I've seen or things that I've learned? First one is the graft matters. So yes, there's a bunch of evidence showing that different grafts have marginally higher rates of re-rupture. Like hamstring, I think is 2% more than bone, brittle, or bone. Um, Enough where, again, it makes a difference. But I think it's less about your rate of re-rupture on the graft, but it's more about the actual rehab process. So hamstring... Bone, patellar bone, and the last one, or the newer one, is quad, and obviously you have allograft two, which is becoming less common where they take a tissue from somewhere else. I, if I was having surgery, the ones I would recommend the least is probably a hamstring. The reason why they do hamstrings is the procedure is relatively straightforward to do. Uh, there's less anterior knee pain afterwards, meaning that you can kind of get the quad going and get extension going with more ease, In general, it's just a little easier recovery, but I have seen at this point, probably close to a hundred different hamstring post-op ACL reconstruction autographs, and I have yet to see one who really gets all their hamstring strength back. And if you know your biomechanics, you know your hamstring is kind of like an incredibly important ACL restrictor or stabilizer. I think hamstring in regards to the lower extremity kinematics is hugely important in pelvic stability, knee rotation, uh, neural mobility, incredibly important muscle that they take a giant chunk out of. So when I'm rehabbing a hamstring, I make a huge, huge emphasis to uh, load the heck out of that thing, both in all three phases in neuromuscular control, strength, endurance, as well as power production. And I think power profiles for hamstrings can be tricky. But point being here is you're probably gonna have less of that anterior knee stuff but a harder time getting all the strength back the bone patellar bone is probably the one i would prefer it has best research lowest re-rupture rate but the issue with that graft is again is that anterior knee pain issues where you get a lot of patella femoral issues um, but i think if you do a good job in the acute phase get extension back soft tissue mobility get the quad going I've seen these ones just do so much better. The graft is so strong. Again, you don't have the posterior chain weakness that all of us had to begin, let alone take a muscle out of it. And so those are the people, again, where if you're having anterior knee pain and it's maybe six, eight weeks out, that's something where you shouldn't be alarmed. Obviously, it took a chunk out of it, right? You should be able to respect tissue healing and get it back. The newest one is the quad tendon. So this one is... Been shown to be good because you have less of the uh, anterior knee pain with this, meaning you're not getting as much of the patellofemoral femoral issues that you would get from a patellar tendon graft. The section they take out of the quad tendon is a little bit more manageable and it's equally as stable. The issue here is you get this almost anterior interval or front of the knee just global soft tissue dysfunction where you kind of get this radiating tension above the kneecap that can be difficult to manage. Um, but again, with these folks, you got to set expectations. So I have one right now who's about four months out. She's still having some like knee tension. The more static she is, she feels it. Obviously, I don't want it there long term, but that's something that you got to expect. Again, appreciate recovery, where for that, it might be trickier to get all your quad strength back. But I've actually just tested her out recently, and her quad strength is actually doing awesome. She actually almost has symmetrical quad strength. She so has some other things going on, but Long story short is you got to respect the graft, understand each person's going to have different system uh, symptoms, each person's going to have different timetables of recovery, so ideally you're not doing cookie cutter ACL rehab regardless of the dra- uh, graft. Lesson number two is you've got to get some cor- sort of creative way to test out rate of force development. So rate of force development is basically the more official way of saying speed training, With the rate of force development, you're looking at how long it takes you to produce large volumes of force. So I like to say, you know, you could move an ox, but if it takes you 12 years to do it, it's not going to be very sport-specific. So it's that combination of being able to move high loads, but also at high speeds. If you're in a good clinic setup where you have force plates and all these fancy tools, obviously those are going to be the best ways to pick it up. But you've got to find some way to test it. So we currently do not have a force plate, so what we utilize are a couple different things. We use a just jump mat, which is a version of way of testing vertical, right? So we do single leg vert, and we do single leg vert side to side, and I want to see 90% to each side. So that's more of a vertical force production. Again, it's not going to get rate. It's going to get probably overall power, but again, we're doing the best we have with what we have. Another cool one is if you do have a Kaiser pulley system is we will do that as well, but have a belt on them and you'll actually get a better version of rate of force development. So if the belt's around you and you jump, it will give you your watt outage. The watts again is kind of like a force and power over time scale. So the vert will give you more of a power profile where the Kaiser is some sort of machine where you can get a wattage output's gonna give you a little bit more of the speed factor, which is really what we're looking at. We'll also look at triple hop, crossover hop, and all that as well. But you got to get some sort of way where you can test speed, change of direction, and so forth, versus just simple triple hop that's just testing more of a power production. Lesson number three, don't get too objective. You have to assess quality as well as quantity. So this is something that I used to get stuck up on where I would have all these numbers, all the numbers look good, strength, motion, squat, uh, like a squat scale, obviously looking at some of the jump tests. But you just almost get too fixated on the numbers and lack the quality, right? So just because somebody can jump really far or jump really fast doesn't mean they do it well, right? So everybody's seen somebody do a horrible squat. That doesn't mean just because they can squat that's a good squat, right? Right. So, you know, you can use Coach's Eye, you can use apps on your phone, have them do some general movements that you think correlate to their sport. So some general ones might be a depth jump where you jump off the box, land, jump again. I do like a lateral cut where I'll set out cones and they have to go, uh, you know, moderate speed where they have to plant, cut at a 90-degree angle. I'll also do, do decel, that ability to eccentrically load the knee, get into more of that knee flexion range, and I'll video it and we have a qualitative scale, but basically it's the standard stuff of knee valgus, foot pronation, pelvic rotation, lumbar flexion, and that lack of knee flexion angle where they end up really tall versus low. So that was lesson three. Make sure you assess quality, not just quantity. Lesson four is the endurance-based test. So I've done tests like the Veil Sports Test in the back, which is just a, uh, in the past, which is a huge endurance base. You just do all these different jumps and squats forever. Uh, we currently just do a single leg squat test where you're doing um, long duration endurance space squats, and I want it to be symmetrical side to side. So about a 65 degree knee flexion angle. I want them to be able to do two or three minutes of one leg squats on the involved side, and ideally the non-involved side is somewhat symmetrical. One thing that I've been saying that I haven't really referenced is you have to be testing the other side. I know the other side isn't the gold standard. You want to test for symmetry, but you also want to make sure that you're not picking up any inherent deficits on the non-involved side and they tear the other knee two years later or whatnot. So the fourth lesson here is got to test endurance. A long-duration squat, a long-duration jump test, whatever you can do to get creative to test how they do with fatigue in the system. And then this is my last one, which is kind of correlating with what we were just talking about. Um, Don't skip the phases. And so by that, I mean, if you haven't finished phase one, which is mostly full range, end range extension, full active control of terminal knee extension, um, normalized gape, efficient bilateral squats, air squats. So, range of motion, normal muscle control, basic functional movement. I don't care if you're at 12 weeks or if you're at 2 weeks, if you can check off with of that box, then you can progress. If you haven't, don't progress. I've seen quite a few ACLs that have gone elsewhere and they'll come in and they can't even get their knees straight or they don't have quad control or they aren't even normalized gait and they're 4 months out and they're already doing jumping excuse me. So sometimes people get fixated. Okay. You're this far out from surgery. I have to be getting you to do blah. Um, and again, don't skip the phases. So commonly what you'll see is people skip the first phase and they don't get all the stuff we just talked about. Or the other thing is they'll skip the last phase. So they do good with phase one. They do good with like mid phase rehab. We've got a moving, they've got decent strength. They started jumping, but just because they can do more plyometric high-speed things doesn't mean they're 100%. So those are the people that are <clears throat> 75 80% of full function and they get full return to sport clearance. Maybe they go that first season without issues. Maybe they are, end up being fine. But those are the people who likely re-rupture, right? So that's where you have your criterion and really get as objective as you can to ensure they've got all that function back. Um, part of the limitation is the insurance model, right? Luckily, we're not in this model, but if you have 20 to 30 visits, there's no way you can get all the way there. So <clears throat> if you're in the insurance model, make sure you educate day one. You're probably going to run out of visits, and we've got to set up a long-term plan. If you're not in the insurance model, kudos to you, and you can kind of ideally dictate that however you want, <clears throat> but incredibly important. So let's recap. Top five things I've learned through my own failures through ACL. Lesson one is respect the graft choice. So by that I mean, don't just treat everybody the same regardless of the graft. Lesson two was the criterion-based system. Don't go by time, go by objective measures, but also make sure you're assessing some sort of qualitative movement as well. Lesson three was rate of force development. Get creative, find some way to work on it. Lesson four was to have some sort of endurance-based metric testing underneath fatigue. And lesson five is don't skip stages. Just because you're X weeks out doesn't mean you can't work on patellar mobility if they don't have it. Don't rush the process, let the patient dictate it, let the client dictate it, not the date from surgery. Way more to talk about ACLs, but things I've seen that I've messed up with are others that we can all learn from. Hopefully there's some good knowledge there. More fun content to come, email, nickh.capacitypt.com DM us online, whatever you got. Let us know if you have questions. Thanks, everybody. What's up, everybody? Nick Hagen from Capacity Performance Therapy leading a discussion-based podcast on three things every CrossFit athlete should be doing. We have the CrossFit Open coming up soon with... A lot of people all over the country doing whatever workout is prescribed um, and i just wanted to review some principles that i think the crossfit programming has missed um, i'm currently located inside an awesome crossfit gym oregon crossfit the way they do things is great where you know the program design is really meant for strength and conditioning and long-term function where you know the risk for injury and such is very minimal And I think in general CrossFit has progressed a lot in the last five to 10 years where it's less about max reps of Olympic lifting to failure and more about truly building strength along functional movement patterns. But the CrossFit program design that typically we'll see is a lot of compound movements like thrusters, cleans, um, jerk. Obviously any sort of the traditional powerlifting as well, including bench and squat and deadlift and so forth. There's also more gymnastics based movements like muscle ups or handstands. And then there's more some traditional accessory work like rows and carries, etc. I think overall the program design is great. You really build a robust athlete, someone that can function in the real world, but also have you know an ideal physique if that's their goal. But with the programming that's done, there's some gaps. And as with a golfer, as with a runner, usually what they're doing is golfing and running. And when they get to their training, they do a lot more of golfing and running. And usually what we need to do is try to counter some of the asymmetrical loading in the sport, try to counter some of the repetitive loading. So again, with CrossFit, it's very bilateral, it's very complex movement, and it's typically very sagittal plane. So by that, I mean both feet are usually on the ground, either in a split stance or a square stance. Um, Movements are typically in the sagittal plane, which means movements usually more forward and backwards. Um, and there's very little rotational movements. So if I'm working with a CrossFit athlete more in the kind of performance therapy setting, where we're trying to combat dysfunctions, either maybe they have pain, but also build a more robust athlete, there's three things that we'll like to focus on. So the first thing is single leg training. So. In CrossFit usually you might see rear foot elevated split squat, you might see lunges forward, backwards. Um, You might see like a clean and jerk where they get into that split squat position uh, walking lunges, whatever the scenario may be. And a lot of those they'll consider unilateral training cause you are trying to bias one leg more than the other, but your body is smart. So if there is dysfunction, there's going to be compensation. So even though you're doing a lunge and trying to bias one leg more than the other, if there is dysfunction, your body's going to compensate and try to unload the involved leg and have the other leg help. Even with the rear foot elevated split squat. That back leg is doing a whole lot more work. And the cool thing about truly being in a unilateral pattern is you're actually all training all three planes of motion at once. So let's say I'm doing a single leg box squat with my non-involved leg floating in the air. That involved leg on the ground is going to be moving in the linear sagittal plane forward and back, but it is controlling against the frontal plane sideways and the transverse plane. So a lot of the unilateral based movements are really imperative for the CrossFit athlete to combat CrossFit training. So that could be a single leg box squat, that could be single leg stance trunk rotations, that could be single leg RDLs to airplanes, that could be um, single leg Spanish squats. So there's a lot of different movements, but what it's really gonna force is that foot stability and overall three planes of motion control and whatever the leg is usually the issue. So one thing we wanna to try to incorporate is single leg training. The next thing is incorporating rotation, incorporating rotation. So <clears throat> rotation obviously huge for like baseball, golf, those rotatory sports, but we have to be able to control rotation no matter who we are. The visual that I like to think about is rotation is really trying to control the joint on axis. So in a healthy joint, you should be able to pivot and rotate 300 and Theoretically, whatever range is available, 100 and 360 degrees, whatever the joint is, in either direction, in a nice stacked neutral position. And you're really going to be controlling the joint through its full range of motion and thus getting full stability around the joint. So, for instance, controlling glenohumeral rotation with internal and external rotation, controlling femoral acetabular or hip rotation with different hip rotation drills, and even controlling spine rotation. Rotation is arguably the most functional movement to control, but is also the hardest to control. So if you have dysfunction, it's not really where you're going to start, but it should be what we all try to progress to. So some examples of some rotation drills to do. Uh, One primary rotation drill that I love is like a a half kneel chop or lift. So that's where you're in a half kneel on one knee position. You have a relatively narrow stance and you're either pulling the band from above or from below and doing like a rotatory chopping or lifting movements. You're gonna get anti-rotation for your, below your uh, trunk, you're gonna get rotation-based strength for above your trunk and you're connecting your arms to your body. Um, Another rotation-based drill that I really like, it's just doing single leg trunk, single leg stance trunk rotations. Where you're on one leg, you're rotating your pelvis around a fixated leg. So you're learning how to control pelvis on extremity versus extremity on pelvis. That's a great lower body one. Or even just doing some good old like single leg stance fire hydrants or some traditional more hip glute stability stuff with a rotation biased. For the <clears throat> upper quarter of the arms, I love internal external rotation at 90. I love external rotation, neutral presses where you're kind of doing more of this, like uppercutting motion, trying to control against rotation. But rotation is a huge thing that's often missed in the CrossFit program design. The third and probably equally as important thing that most CrossFit folks are missing in traditional program design or static or postural controls. So the sport in its nature is very dynamic, functional compound, which is awesome, which is the whole point. But when you have a kink in your armor, when you have inefficiency, you need to learn how to control static postures to get that local stability or that intrinsic stability to then produce distal mobility, force or movement. So, you know, let's say you have somebody with a cranky back. Can they control their thoracic block over their pelvic block? And maybe the frontal or sideways plane and the sagittal plane against rotation um let's say they have chronic ankle instability can they control their ankle their talus being underneath their mortise with equal weight through the inside and outside of their foot in a single leg stance in a step up in a lateral lunge in a 3d lunge matrix so trying to teach people what a quote unquote efficient or appropriate core first alignment is to create that proximal stability and then trying to get dynamic off of it. So teach static, teach breathing, teach appropriate alignment. So then they can build into more load, speed, multiple planes of motion. So again, three things that I think every CrossFit athlete should try to supplement with their program, single leg work rotation-based work, static postural control, that idea of creating proximal stability before distal mobility. So hope some of that's beneficial. Doesn't mean you need to do all of it. I guarantee if you're a CrossFit athlete, you could gain from some of it. If you're in more of the rehab setting, think about those pillars. Hopefully start using it with your athlete management. All right, guys, take care and more fun stuff to come. up team Nick Hagen capacity performance therapy back for another discussion based podcast hope everybody's doing well I um, hope these podcasts are informational my goal is again especially with these discussion based ones 10 minutes or less you leave with a nugget or two maybe creates a different framework about how you think about things or gives you a little thing you can maybe add with your training or with your clients so the topic of our discussion today is related to program design, but the principle of sweat does not equal success, particularly with workouts. This is a trap I know that I fall into. It's a trap I've seen with clients, friends, etc., where the idea with a workout is if you're not finishing the workout dead on the ground, sweating buckets and shot for the rest of the day, then that's not a good workout. And don't get me wrong, there's a time and place for this high intensity interval training I think is huge. The calories you burn is unmatched to anything. Uh, Usually you're doing functional movement patterns that are gonna carry over to life in the real world. And eventually you have to train speed and power if you want to get better at speed and power. So we can't just do breathing drills and balance drills and think it's gonna carry over to the sports or whatever the hobby is. So point there is getting your butt kicked and working out is the ideal goal, but it shouldn't be our framework for basing what is a successful workout and what is successful program design. By no means am I the world's best program designer. Do I know how to create a four, six, eight week block that's better than any other trainer in the area, I would say no. I would actually say I'm more of a novice in that. But I think I have some good understanding of what are some foundations to building a program. And probably even more importantly, what are things we want to try to limit or avoid? So I think of late, we've seen a lot more gyms open up that are HIT based. They'll actually have the name HIT in it, high intensity interval training. Or you'll go to a boot camp class or I don't know a burner class or whatever kind of buzz word, fancy name there is. Um, And I'm not going to name certain gyms or anything, but there's several gyms in town where you're doing some more workouts. You're doing treadmilling, treadmill, running, rowing, uh, maybe box jumps, uh, circuits of 12 to 15 exercises that you're doing three or four rounds with minimal rest in between. And all that's great because you're going to be constantly moving. Your heart rate's going to be in a great zone for burning calories and promoting accommodation. Um, and you're going to feel like you got a good workout. Again, all fine and dandy, but it cannot be the essence of your program. Meaning by that, it cannot be what your whole wellness exercise program is based upon. Um, I saw a client last week, had kind of a cute low back flare up, started doing. <coughs> more high intensity interval training six weeks prior to the flare up when she had the flare up, there was no clear mechanism of injury. She basically finished her workout later that day. She just struggled to stand up and eventually kind of got locked up. That's a prime example of where that principle of I got to sweat. I got to feel like I'm going to die to do a workout is going to catch up to you. So In the ideal scenario we have those workouts but there's maybe two max three in a week so you might call those time-based workouts where you're doing whatever as many rounds as you can within 12 minutes they might be uh as many rounds as you can kind of thing so like can you do sorry uh 12 rounds as fast as you can or whatnot but usually they're going to be more time-based or have some sort of objective interval measure and you're going to try to do it as fast as you can that should only be happening two or three times a week because we got to be allowing for recovery so recovery is on many levels but if you're taxing that system which is going to be more your anaerobic glycolytic phosphagen systems that are based on high energy outputs within a short period of time you have to promote recovery even whatever a baseball player or a professional bodybuilder whatever sport we want to think of they allow for recovery a pitcher doesn't pitch for seven days a guy doing bench press doesn't do it seven days a week there is rest and recovery and i feel like we miss that with the HIT training so you finish the workout you do great but your body can't accommodate So you actually don't end up losing body weight to fetch your goal. You end up burning out and something gets injured and you blame it on whatever you squatted and your knee started hurting, but really it was the six weeks prior before of high interval training without recovery that eventually made that squat hurt your knee. So it's often not when the mechanism started, but the prior load, right? So we have to allow recovery. We have to find the optimal load where you can still maybe get in the hit training, but you're not overstimulating or overloading the system. And then we have to make sure we're doing all the other things really well too, to be doing regular hit training without issues, sleep, Are you getting your seven-plus hours of sleep, diet? Are you trying to eat somewhat healthy foods that don't come in a box, that have limited sugar, gluten, and dairy? Um, And then the other big thing is stress, right? So you could sleep well, eat well, but if you are working 85 hours a week and have 20 million stressors at home, adding more stress to your system with multiple high-intensity workouts a week is eventually going to catch up to you. So again, I don't want you leaving this discussion thinking that interval training is bad. Like I said, it's probably arguably one of the best workouts you can get, but we have to be smart with the way we program it. So maybe you're doing two or three of them in a week. I don't know where you're going or how you're doing it. If you're doing it independently, maybe that's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday scheme, a Tuesday, Thursday scheme. And then the other days that you want to get workouts and maybe you make a more strength-based, right? So you have maybe more of a, lower body push upper body pull with some four by five squats and some six by six pull-ups maybe the other heavy strength day is more deadlifts and cleans and floor press and push-ups where you're doing four five six seven eight sets which i know can be cumbersome but you're really stimulating the system with a whole lot of load which is gonna create recovery, but you're not tapping into those anaerobic systems as much. So it's a different energy source, thus not influencing your recovery from the HIIT training the day before. And then we have to also just step away and get a good old day of cardio, if not two. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to go on a run or a bike ride, but you could do some rowing. Maybe it's a 45 minute to two hour walk. Um, whatever ways, maybe it just carries whatever ways where you maybe have less intensity than the hit training, less load than the true power lifting strength phases, and more of just lower intensity, longer duration stimulus. So again, you're getting two or three hit days in a week. You're getting two or three strength days in a week. You're getting one or two cardio based workouts in a week. Um, I know that can sometimes be hard to swallow, to finish a workout, not be dying in sweat, finish a workout feeling like you can maybe work out again, which might feel like you fail, but actually that's encouraging because that's going to make the next day's workout that much better. Um, and the other really difficult thing is the way our current fitness and health industry is, is, is things are marketed towards the hit, right? So. You'll see ads, you'll see campaigns, you'll see your local gyms all doing these things where it's just easy to kind of fall in the trap of always doing it. So hopefully there's a little thing or two you learn there. If you're in more of the rehab setting, these should be things we're trying to educate our clients on that your back didn't go out because of that deadlift you did but it was a two months prior of lack of recovery. If you're in the fitness setting and you're trying to improve your overall fitness yourself, think about how you're designing your program think about, are you creating a pathway to burnout where either you're not going to get stronger, you're not going to get leaner, or you're going to get injured in some capacity. Um, Tricky, not easy, something to think about. Hopefully that was worthwhile, guys. Um, And again, more fun content to come. Have a good one. Hey, Capacity fam. This is uh, Nick coming back with another discussion-based podcast. What we're going to be talking about today is what manual therapy and the use of hands-on care can do to fill gaps in your progress, either as a client or as a provider. Before we get into that, just a couple more updates on things. So have fun podcast coming up. We have a podcast with uh, Joe Locoso, who is a high school varsity coach, but also a specialist in kind of vestibular brain functional neurology training more for the athletic side of things. I know we've had a couple guests lately talking about that, but I think it's super interesting to learn about the cognitive side of how you move. I think there's whole bunch of info out there on the strength and conditioning side of things but when it gets to like the cognitive the mind side of movement and the history of pain and your perception of pain and movement you know i find it super interesting so he'll be coming up for a local podcast we also have podcasts on uh mindfulness and mental behind uh behind pain and movement and a couple other fun guests coming up so stay tuned uh as always reach out with Questions, guest requests, content requests, and we'd love to kind of fill any sort of gaps that you guys have. Um, But let's get into it. So manual therapy, I think these days, I don't know, it feels like the world we live in, especially for health and wellness and fitness and rehab and all the above, is things are just so polarizing. And it can be confusing, particularly if you're newer into the profession, really, to cipher out what is real, what is not, what do you do? So first off, if you're ever in that scenario, always just go with your gut, and usually the middle ground is correct. So if you're really far on one side or the other side with a camp, you're probably off a little kilter, where if you can kind of find that middle ground and do what you think works best, and often what you get the best results, don't fall into the trap of what you see on a research paper, what you see on a social media post, kind of know through your previous experiences what really works best. But when it comes to manual therapy, you know, you'll see people who show that there's 12 articles that say manual therapy doesn't work. You'll find people who say that there's 12 articles that manual therapy does work, and right? Usually the middle ground is what's, what's accurate. But manual therapy in particular, and as well as neuromuscular control and neuro is really hard to research. Unlike a exercise-based research protocol, where you do this exercise, whatever it is, four sets of eight for four weeks and see if your strength gets better. It's a lot easier to create a randomized control trial with less gaps in it. But when you're talking about soft tissue mobilization, when you're talking about neuromuscular control, when you're talking about PNF and all these other variables, it's a lot less rigid and more dynamic and there's more of an art to it, which is why it's harder to research. For that reason, I feel like that's why it's sometimes harder for people to grasp and why they kind of avoid it, right? They don't do what they don't know, where if you can kind of expose yourself to some of these principles, you can get a lot better changes. But what do I see as manual therapy? What is it doing to help maybe fill the gaps in what we're trying to do for our clients? So first off, exercise strength is king. All of us should be striving to basically, to load the basic movement patterns of hinging, squatting, pushing, pulling, carrying, crawling, rolling, and so forth. If we are not getting to those movement patterns and we're not training the body through this developmental motor sequence, we are doing a disservice. You are then creating dependency, you are creating more of a passive treatment model where you'll get changes but they'll be short-lived and then you're really not creating an independent wellness-based program for people to follow and have long-term results. So that's the most important thing. So we're talking about manual therapy and how that might be an additional cogwheel to how that improves its performance, right? So if our end range goal is to find a movement pattern of dysfunction, retrain that movement pattern and load it and then progress it. How could manual therapy be an asset to that? I think the first thing, when I describe manual therapy, I include PNF in that process, because it's hands-on care, and you're retraining the neuromuscular system. PNF really hangs its hat on the principles of initiation, strength, endurance, and relaxation. If you can't initiate, you can't produce force, you can't produce force over a period of time, and you can't have the ability to relax or turn down the tone in those situations, you really aren't using the muscles and you're not coordinating correctly so whenever you have pain you lose this feed forward mechanism or you lose the ability to have more of a proximal response to create distal mobility how do we retrain that right so let's just say whatever reason they have back pain you're retraining bridges you're retraining side planks you're doing all these great exercises that everybody needs to be doing that doesn't necessarily mean that you've restored that feed forward mechanism, that proximal stability helping distal mobility. So manual therapy or PNF's huge in that, right? Basic principle is something's inhibited, put the body in a position of inhibition, retrain that motor pattern, retrain the homunculus, the ability for the brain to map where that body is in space and how to recruit the appropriate postural muscles which are also called tonic stabilizers. So <clears throat> manual therapy can be huge in restoring the appropriate neuromuscular control or strength of the joint. More often than not, when you have chronic issues, chronic back pain, the inflammation calms down, the movement pattern restores, but you don't get that inherent tonic or postural stability and you don't restore the initiation of the muscle group and there's tons of research where paul hodges out of australia is a primary example of it of when we have pain just simply because it goes away doesn't mean that the stability appropriately returns and this can be 10 20 30 years later so again point being is if you're an exercise based therapist which i think we all should be If you don't use your hands to help retrain some of those patterns of crawling, rolling, PNF of pelvic scapula, bridging, lower trunk rotation, half kneel, tall kneel, and so forth, you're really not retraining the dysfunction that developed. And so what happens is you end up loading that dysfunction and problems persist. So I think manual therapy can be huge to get the appropriate control of the muscle groups to ensure when you're doing the movement pattern you're not loading on top of dysfunction i think the other huge thing with manual therapy it's changing tone so when you have dysfunction tone develops i have acute low back pain my muscles are freaking out they guard and tone develops when i have chronic ankle dysfunction i've never loaded my ankle I inherently have tone, I've lost that motor control or that motor mapping to my brain and dysfunction develops. When you simply put your hands on one someone, you create uh, <clears throat> stimulation of blood flow, of the actual muscle spindles, uh, maybe you're creating some warmth to the area. What that's doing is changing tone or changing the body's perception of that region. So you could be doing whatever manual therapy technique you want to be doing. If you add it to an area of dysfunction, take it back into the movement pattern afterwards, there's a reduction in tone, right? So that might be a short-lived thing, but who cares? If the tone reduction is reduced, the body then kind of accepts the area again, and you start to load it, it's going to happen that much easier, and you're going to get quicker results. So that five minutes of hands-on care is going to make the next 20 minutes of exercise that much better. I think another huge gap that manual therapy can really fill is how soft tissue dysfunction develops and how we need to restore efficiency of the soft tissue system. So when it comes to a joint issue, the issue is usually extra-articular. So by that I mean it's rarely an issue inside the joint. There are exceptions to that. If you have a loose bone fragment, if you have a labral tear, if you have a true you know, acute trauma where there's like a fracture to something, yes, there are stuff in the joint or interarticular that are the issue. But then more often than not, when you have any form of itis, rotator cuff tendinitis, patellar tendinitis, bursitis, uh, sciatica, any of these buzzwords, they're usually because of issues extra meaning tissue, fascia, ligaments, tendons, uh, and so forth. All the structures outside the joint usually become dysfunctional, where if you can restore the efficiency of those soft tissue structures outside the joint, the joint itself then has this free movement. So I call it like a dirty lever. If you clean up what's around the joint, there's this nice clean lever then to pivot and move off of. And manual therapy is huge in that, right? So you might say, well, I don't need to use manual therapy. I can foam roll, I can gun, I can put a band somewhere and do like my own banded mobilizations. And I love all that stuff. I think that's great. And that's maybe another discussion on how to use that stuff. But what manual therapy can do that those structures don't do is really localize the dysfunction, load the dysfunction in three dimensions, and then take it into the movement patterns. And that's kind of a theme, right? So let's use foam rolling. Let's use your rectus femoris. You have a soccer athlete, you are a soccer athlete who's got rectus femoris issues from repetitive kicking that probably stem for some trunk issue. You could go in and you could foam roll it, you could lacrosse ball it, but most often than not, what you're doing is a linear technique on a linear dysfunction. So you're almost causing more compression and adhesion to an area that's already compressed and adherent, right? which is why tools like uh, cupping myofascial decompression, cross-fictional, circumferential... Uh, And then localization of wherever the dysfunction is in regards to depth, direction, um, are all huge in restoring the efficiency. So what I'm saying is, is if you use a tool more often than that, you might be facilitating the soft tissue dysfunction and irritating it even more. Where manual therapy can localize it, create more of a three-dimensional load to create what I call like sliding. Can you get that rectus femoris to slide over that ASIS and the deep structures below it? Can you get the skin and fascia to slide and glide on top of that rectus femoris? Um, and manual therapy, I think, can achieve that. Now, using a stim and doing soft tissue for 45 minutes is probably overdoing it, where if you can just find your localized spot, spend 30 seconds or less on the localized spot and find two or three of those along the the fascial line of restriction, that's all you need. It can be five minutes or less, and then you take it, maybe your PNF and then get them off the table and do whatever movement pattern of dysfunction. But hugely valuable tool and to really localize where that soft tissue dysfunction where I just feel like uh, a vibrating ball just doesn't pick it up. And my last thing on manual therapy in regards to its use for improving movement efficiency is just the application of load. Like I said to start, load up a barbell, put a heavy kettlebell, do carries, pull a sled, all these great things are, again are top tier. What we're talking about are ways that maybe you can accent that. And I've found that the use of your hands to create resistance to the trunk, the extremity, whatever you're working on, can find the appropriate load and like any, unlike any other weight can. So for instance, let's say we're doing someone with a hip flexion issue. I'm going back to the hip, but rectus, uh, maybe it's psoas, maybe it's TFL, whatever the issue is. It's a very superficial dominated movement pattern. You're trying to teach that deep core response to the hip. If you put a band on their feet, if you put a weight on their thigh and have them replicate hip flexion, it's really hard to find that appropriate load to facilitate that trunk response. If you go too light, it'll be too easy. If you go too heavy, it'll be too hard, and you'll get more of that phasic or superficial response. Using your hands, and it can even be in a weight-bearing position or whatever movement you're doing to provide load, can give that exact amount of resistance they need to create that summation or a fancy way to build up that core response to what you're looking for. So to summarize... And to kind of respect your guys' time here and get in and out of here with some good content for you, what did manual therapy do or what can manual therapy do to accent the most important thing that we're trying to do with every one of our clients, which is load the developmental movement patterns and progress load over time. Manual therapy can provide a neuromuscular response unlike any exercise will because your body's always going to go to the path of least resistance even if it's a pattern that's tricky your body's always going to use what it's good at and not what it's bad at your hands are going to fill that gap the other big one is soft tissue most issues in joints are soft tissue or what's going on outside the joint no tool no gadget can localize facilitate sliding and gliding like your hands can and the third thing i said was just providing load providing that appropriate load to f- promote the response that you're looking for so if you're a manual therapist, I encourage you to do more than manual therapy. If you're an exercise-based PT, I encourage you to get some of the basic training. And Whenever I'm teaching courses or out there talking with people, the one class I recommend no matter who you are is take PNF. I teach with the Institute of Physical Art. I obviously believe in what they do and I think they have an amazing PNF level course, but there's so many other ways to learn PNF and there's so much more to it than contract, relax or whatnot. Um, So hopefully that was worthwhile. Hopefully you learned a thing or two. Long story short, the middle ground's always best. Find your middle ground that gives you the best outcomes possible that's based on evidence and based on what you've seen work with your clients in the past. Thanks, and have a good one. Hey listeners, how's it going? So... Coming back with a discussion-based podcast today, what we're going to be talking about is how to determine if we have a motor control issue, and maybe some quick ways to retrain motor control. Um, Just to update you on things, uh, again, we got more podcasts coming up, inviting other speakers, talking about some more S&C principles, some more rehab principles, some more wellness recovery principles, so stay tuned for that. Um... And as always, appreciate all the feedback uh, on different platforms, but speak up, let us know if there's a topic you wanna talk about or anything you're interested in. I think the one we're gonna be talking about today is interesting about motor control issues. So what is a motor control issue? You know, a good way to think about that is the misalignment of the input into the output. The software is not talking to the hardware. So what I mean by that is there might be a perceived mobility or stability issue but it's not actually driven from uh, caps or a change inherently limiting range of motion it's not limited by a true atrophied muscle that doesn't know how to produce force it's more limited by the interpretation of the task at hand and creating the output that you're looking for so you know what would be a basic way to say that right so Maybe someone is limited in a rotatory pattern and you clear out different rotatory movements and you can't figure out why one is limited in one direction and limited in the other and stand in another direction and so forth. And often it can be more of an output issue or interpretation issue. So let me talk through that in more detail. So a common one is probably rotation because rotation often is the most demanding task on the system. It loads all three points of motion at once, but it's also the most usually sport specific task. So let's say we have a golfer. The golfer is in for you for maybe some, the right-handed golfer in for some right shoulder pain and some left low back pain. Um, you watch their golf swing, you notice some things, but one of the biggest things you look at is maybe how they rotate. So you have them do a standing trunk rotation, Maybe they go, I don't know, 50 degrees to the right and standing. They go 60, 70 degrees to, right, or to the left and standing. Then you sit down, you take the hips out of it, and then it inverts where maybe now it's 50 degrees to the left, 70 or 80 degrees to the right and sitting, which biomechanically doesn't necessarily make sense. Typically, the only thing that changes is, you know, the interaction of the hips when you're sitting, you're not going to be using your hips as much as you do when you're standing. Maybe look at it a third way. And now you go into like a lumbar lock quadruped rotation. And again, maybe you notice that the right rotation is better than the left. Point being here is the rotation is limited in different patterns at different positions. If you have a biomechanism point of view, you would start to get confused, right? So maybe in lumbar extension, they have rotation better, but sitting's also extension. Why would it change there? And you're just trying to wrap your head around You know, is it the hips? Is it something else? Um, And often it can be a motor control issue, right? So you can start going down the the rabbit hole of trying to tease out some mobility issue that's driving it. But again, I encourage you to think about that input-output ratio. I think, Someone smarter than me once said, it's almost like a, a light switch, right? So you're asking the task to be achieved and the person can't figure it out, right? The, the switch is off. So what we've got to do is turn the switch back on and create that connection. And there's a couple movement patterns that are usually really good at that. But these are the kind of issues that we want to be picking up. These are the super fun ones. These are the ones where you can get immediate changes in motion, immediate changes in function, because you don't have to address an inherent stiff capsule. You don't have to spend your four to eight weeks of loading the movement pattern to get hypertrophy. It's truly like a neuromuscular control issue. So in this uh, situation where rotation's changing in different positions um, and you start to get a little confused where it doesn't match up with a mechanical pattern, what could be some ways that you might tease it out? So one would be watching them roll, and this is something that we do all the time with our PNF techniques, but rolling is huge, right? Rolling is the interconnection of your lower quadrant to your upper quadrant, and the connector is your core. So if you can't roll, you're losing that connection and there's that output issue. So the developmental motor sequencing, rolling is one of the first primary patterns that we all wanna work on. So if you had somebody, you might put them on the ground, you have them in supine, arms extended, legs extended, and you say, roll from your back to your left. Maybe when they roll, you know, their legs are sluggish, the upper half's moving, the head's moving, but there's not that connection. You put them on their back, they roll to their right, and it's smooth, coordinated. So you know there's, in that scenario, we'd call that a mass flexion pattern of rolling to the left is inhibited. And you'd be surprised you get them up or sorry you have them roll five to ten times teach them the movement pattern teach them to try to move from the scapula at the pelvis at the same time Um, do five to ten rolls maybe even up to twenty get them back into those movement patterns of restriction you'll notice that the standing rotation and the sitting rotation gets better right so you didn't actually change any capsule mobility you didn't improve strength you improved the output you improved that motor control so there's a lot of different ways to do this as well. So rolling would be one, right? So that should be a go-to that we all use to maybe help tease out motor control issues. True PNF techniques of like pelvic and scapular PNF are huge because they're kind of manual based PNF patterns where you can facilitate the mass pattern of flexion, the mass pattern of extension, to get the motor control back in check. So in that scenario I was saying before, you could use manual resistance on the lower quarter to help facilitate the flexion-based movement pattern. So <clears throat> PNF's huge, you can do PNF in different positions of half-kneel, tall-kneel, quadruped, supine, side-lying. And it's a great way just to basically connect the extremity to the trunk. We talked about rolling. Another huge one is crawling, right? <clears throat> so if you lack motor control and you lack that connection of upper to lower or trunk to upper or trunk to lower crawling is a great way to do it so in the motor sequencing after we learn how to roll after we learn how to prop on elbows and we learn how to kneel in different positions we eventually learn how to crawl so you can do resistive crawling with your hands, with bands. Maybe you're doing crawling at different angles, trying to do three-dimension crawling. These would all be things that you would go to, not just because you have someone in like acute low back pain, but you have somebody again with that output issue. So again, you're doing tests and the rotation's different. You're doing tests and the squat looks clean, but the second you put them in a single leg position, it goes awry. There's a lot of different examples of this. Uh, maybe that's a cervical rotation and an upper extremity rotation where the demands of the sport don't match up with what you're seeing and it changes from standing to supine to sitting, which again, mechanically, that should make a huge difference. And so you know there's motor control issues there. So I think a good thing to kind of take away from some of this conversation is we should have several ways to test the same principles. So we'll go back to rotation, several ways to test rotation, standing, sitting, supine, side-lying. We should also have different ways of retraining the motor control, and the ways there would be rolling, crawling, breathing, um, and different kneeling positions would be go-tos there. And I think the, the art of a great coach, a great PT is integrating that motor control integrating that neuromuscular control, but within your functional training, right? So I often see in the gym as people are doing great movement patterns, but they're not doing them with the movements or the muscles that they're looking for. You know, probably a back squat would be the prime example. There's a time and place for the back squat, but more often than not, they're going to be doing an extension based bias. They're gonna be doing a back squat, trying to strengthen their legs, and really they're just loading their paraspinals and their spine, and they're not actually gonna get the long-term strength outcomes that they're looking for. So, you know, a great coach might see that. They might see in the examination these different teases of motor control issues that we've talked about. Maybe their active rest between sets is rolling or crawling. Maybe when they're actually doing the set of the back squat, they're giving them visual cues, verbal cues, even tactile cues of some postural things to look at of trying to connect the trunk to the extremity. Um, but I think I think if you can start to pick up this stuff and start to grasp it, they are awesome things to get those immediate changes and buy-in. And more often than not, the clients that we're working with, especially if you're more with the active population, are doing plenty of strength, doing plenty of mobility, and they've been doing it for a while and haven't had changes, and you're the one that's going to help fill that gap. So if you're looking for more resources on this um i mean the probably the most gold standard would be like the sfma or fms where they're looking at all these different movement patterns dns also adds awesome great integration of all these developmental movement patterns and how they influence movement like i listed before pnf is great with the folks out of kaiser vallejo or ipa does a lot of pnf stuff as well but i think if you aren't understanding the neuromuscular control aren't understanding how the body is threatened in different positions and interprets movement differently based on how you're situated, you're gonna be missing a huge part of it. So learn up, learn up some of that stuff, use some of the developmental movement patterns of rolling probably being the prime example, and start to think big picture, start to think about putting pieces of the puzzle together with your assessments versus just being rigid like shoulder external rotation, shoulder flexion. How is external rotation and flexion being integrated and how does it change based on the position and the load that you put them under these are the kind of train of thoughts that we want to be thinking about so hopefully that's beneficial hopefully there was a little nugget or two to take away and uh, reach out with any questions but stay tuned for more info and have a good one Alright, what's up capacity? This is Nick Hagan, director owner of Capacity Performance Therapy. We're talking about a discussion-based podcast on the concept of more isn't better. Um, just if you've new to the podcast or don't know the kind of the background of what we're doing here, uh, we run a physical therapy and wellness clinic based out of Bend, Oregon. Um, We market ourselves, we try to hang our hat on and trying to kind of fill the gap in fitness. So we like to think of ourselves as a hybrid between traditional physical therapy and maybe a traditional gym or S&C place. We do a little bit of PT, we do a little bit of strength and conditioning, we do group training, we do recovery, we do manual therapy. Kind of the one-stop shop for people who have long-term wellness needs. And so what we utilize this podcast for is for educating our clients that we currently have. We use it for introducing our clients to local providers that we trust and respect, but we also do it for the general population as well as other fitness uh, professionals and providers who maybe kind of want to learn a little bit to accent their practice. And so what we do is once a month, we have an interview-based podcast. Our last one was with Josh Cordell talking about the youth athlete mindset. He's kind of a youth sports uh, mental coach. We have one with a chiropractor coming up talking about the role of spinal mobility and manipulations in long-term health. Uh, And today we're doing a discussion-based podcast. So what I'm going to be talking about today is, again, the concept of more isn't better. So let me throw out a couple just case scenarios. And I guarantee you know these folks, meaning you've seen this, you're either it yourself or you can sympathize with it. So one more isn't better clientele that could have huge changes to their results their fitness uh, are the runners right so if you have a runner typically the mindset is if i run more i'm going to get better at running which if you're going from a couch to a 5k that's probably the case but more often than not, you already have a good basis of mileage, and more running is going to be more actually detrimental. We're actually offsetting it with other training is going to actually get you to run faster, harder, and uh, have better results. And we'll get into some of the why here. Uh, the other clientele is the HIT high intensity training boot camp clientele, with the mindset being if I don't die at the end of the workout, if I'm not sweating buckets, Heaving, feeling exhausted, feeling defeated after a workout, then I haven't achieved the workout. You know, those are the people who feel like if their heart's not pumping, they're not breathing heavy, they're not sweating buckets, it's not a workout. Which, don't get me wrong, there's a time and role for that. But again, if those people can vary up their training, they're going to get better results. So that mindset of more of the same isn't going to be better. The third group is more of a vague group. But these are the people who have... A genetic makeup or a general bias towards a modality, a training tool, and they just go all in on it and are devoted to it, and eventually it catches up to them. So that's the yoga head who's doing yoga five or six times a week. They're probably a hypermobile individual to begin. They're having even more mobility on top of excessive mobility, and again, it's going to catch up to them. Or it's the short, stocky guy who's incredibly unmobile, power lifts, trains a short range of motion, only stays in that short range of motion, and thinks all the other stuff is just BS. And again, that's going to catch up to them. You could fill in that in with basically many of these other things. Pilates, bar three, uh, whatever. Any other kind of training program that would fit into that. So the point I'm making here with all these different groups is... You have your hobby, you have your sport, you have your workout method, and it's probably the best thing for you. It's actually a really good thing for you. But what's happening is you're overtraining this principle and you're gonna reduce your outcomes. So there's this point of diminishing returns. And so what happens with your body is you're training this principle of what's called specificity, meaning you're training your body to become really good at this one thing. And depending on what the one thing is, it, to get improved performance, improved recovery, improved motor output and also get changes to your vitals your movement vitals such as like a movement screen your heart rate blood pressure as well as your force production you have to change your training modality so let's talk about a running just to put it into context let's say you're training for a marathon right you're trying to get in two or three long runs a week, somewhere in the 10 to 15 mile range. You're getting two to three short runs a week. Maybe you're picking up tempo and then maybe you have two or three other runs that are more just kind of moderate six to eight mile runs. So you're running seven miles or seven days a week. You have no off day from running. Really the only variable that you're truly changing is maybe you have a shorter run day where you're going faster. But outside of that, you are just doing more of the same stimulus to your body, right? And so what's going to happen is your body starts to acclimate to this. You don't get the scientific tissue level changes that you're looking for for running. What you're actually doing is you're teaching your body to acclimate and you're just creating a a exaggerated baseline, meaning you're just accenting what you already have. Um, It's not going to help you run further. It's not going to help you run faster. It's actually probably going to lead to pain because you're going to kind of repetitively use the same muscle groups. And so that's where if this runner would maybe change that program to do one long run, have two off days from running, have one short run, but where you're really hauling ass around a track and maybe have one to two other just kind of moderate level runs. So a really long run, a really fast short run and a run or two in addition. And then on the days that you're taking off, build your strength, right? so as a runner you're gonna typically think if i'm not running if i'm not doing a long duration base activity i'm going to be cheating myself but if that runner would spend 30 to 45 minutes doing five sets of five squats working on hip mobility working on controlling ranges of motion that they're not truly acclimating which might be hip extension might be hip rotation maybe ankle dorsiflexion maybe thoracic rotation but training big ranges What they're going to do is they're actually going to increase their running speed, they're going to become more durable, and they're going to get better outcomes. And so, again, that idea of more being better is not true. Now, I think the art of being a great coach or the art of being a great athlete is to step back and kind of realize your own mistakes or shortcomings and try to... To alter it, if you're a coach, you have to show them the light, right? So that might just be hey, just trust me, give me four weeks of following this, and we'll come back to these tests and measures and show you that they're getting better. Maybe if you have a clientele that's a little bit more research based, you can show them two or three. There's probably 50 articles that I know that would support that same concept. You could show them some research paper, but once you can get one or two clients and use them as kind of a launch pad for future clients, it's going to do huge value in coaching up this aspect. Um, let's get into like the, the hit training folks, right? So these are p- folks, from what I can tell, that really love this stuff, are usually more of the... It's not always the case, but let's generalize. They're usually going to be more of the type A personality. They're usually not getting a whole bunch of sleep. They're usually pretty hard workers, and if they're not hard workers, they're stressing their system in another way, like managing childcare and doing 12 other things. So anyway, they usually have a tax system... And then they go into exercise into an additional taxed uh, environment. And by that, I mean like a high intensity, high speed, loud music. I mean, there's even gyms in town now that like put on bright strobe lights and turn off the lights or, you know, like a bike bar place that you can go and train where it's just incredibly stimulating. And so you're stressed Your body's already at a peak, and then you go and try to work out and put even more high-level peaking stress on top of the system, and it's just not going to accept it, right? And so what you're actually going to do is you're going to limit the ability to recover. You're going to limit the actual strength gains of what you're trying to accomplish, and you're actually not going to burn as many calories. So an interesting thing to think about and a good thing to know is If you strength train, you actually burn calories after you're working out. So what happens is you get the local level tissue changes where the sarcomeres or the muscle fibers break. Those muscle fibers then have to create a metabolic response to create more muscle to re-acclimate and build new tissue around the ones that you strained. Point being is the strength training workout leads to caloric burn for the rest of the day, where that HIIT workout, you're burning calories during the fact, but you're actually not gonna burn any calories afterwards. So you might burn more in a shorter period of time, but over the length of the day, you're gonna significantly burn less calories than if you would do a strength training session. Um, and it, research has actually shown that more sleep, proper nutrition, hydration, stress management actually leads to improved caloric burn as well, where you're actually going to retain the training that you're trying to accomplish. So another way to say that again would be if you go with this tax system and then you train, you're actually going to deny the training benefits, if that makes sense. That's not maybe the right word, but you're just not going to accept the loads into your system because your system's in this stressed out state that's not going to be responsive to the changes. Where if you had actually worked out less or try to sleep more or create a more homeostatic neutral environment that you then try to train on top of, you're actually going to get the longer lasting changes that you're looking for. So for this person the hit training classes, usually I say if you can go two max three times a week, that's more than enough. I mean, I think one time a week would be enough but I think there's some CrossFit gyms that are starting to get the hang of this too where it's not just a kick-your-ass wad every time. There's got to be a days where you just move some heavy weight, you move it aggressively, and you rest between I get that six sets of six squats, which I know can be boring and feel like you're not getting work, but you're going to get so much better long-term outcomes than you do if you just kick yourself in the ass every time you work out. The other one is the the folks that... Go down the pathway that they're already good at. So, this is the hypermobile person or excessively mobile person who does yoga all the time. This is the excessively stiff person that does power training and only trains a short range over and over and over again, right? So, hopefully, that makes sense with these folks is that if you can show them, or if this is you, if you can appreciate what you're doing, what your limitations are. So, let's just say it's a hypermobile person that hangs out on their low back, the back of their knees their neck into extension. If you can show them how much weaker they are when they're in those postures, how they don't have peripheral leg strength, if they show that they can't hold a prolonged posture, and then say, hey, you're going into this one or two hours a day, every day at yoga, um, you're gonna show them that basically every time they go to yoga, they're inhibiting their system. They're straining passive structures, bone, joint, disc, ligament, versus active structures. Uh, muscles tendons etc hopefully that sets the tone then where I mean it doesn't mean yoga is bad for the person but they're going to have to be much more specific than their next door neighbor and be probably controlling the range better and do shorter ranges of motion and these again would be the people that would hugely benefit from smaller range squat isometric holds with different loads really training your basic functional movement patterns of squat push pull hinge lunge, carry, press, etc. And same with the power lifter, right? So a power lifter usually is putting a crap ton of weight on their system. They're training a zero to 45 degree knee bend if they're doing squats. And they're getting really good at training a short degree of motion. Then they bend over to pick up a pencil and they throw out their back and they think it's maybe the training they've done. But really it's the repetitive exposure that's overwhelming their system. So there are always exceptions, but I think the general principle of more being better is not the case. What you need to do is find your sweet spot and everybody has a different sweet spot. And I think once you can get through this first hurdle of building your base, if we use the runner, that's probably the easy example, you've ran your marathon, you've been a runner for three to five years, you've got your running base, right? So you don't need to just put more base on top of that, you need to vary it and you're gonna get better running outcomes. These are the people who strain their back. Six months later, they sprain their ankle. Four months later, they have sciatica and they start chasing the symptoms. Where if they would just step back, look at their protocol, and ideally they have, depending on your hobby, but two or three more cardio days, maybe four if you're truly a runner, one or two HIIT training days a week, maybe three if that's really your passion three or four strength days a week, maybe more if you're a power lifter, but you're kind of getting the idea. There should be a cardio basis, there should be a strength basis, there can be a high interval basis, and there should be a recovery day where you're not straining your system in any of those manners, you're stepping out and you're working on mindfulness. Go for walks, spin on a bike, get outside, breathe fresh air. Um, And I make this sound easy and I think it sounds simple but it's super, super difficult. Your body almost gets addicted. The person maybe has 12 reasons why they're doing it for the look of their body, for their time away, it's their me time, and so forth. So I'm not saying it's an easy fix, but I think the first step is realizing your shortcomings in your training. The next step is then to step back and see, where can I cut out some of the meat and build, right? And I guarantee if you're the runner and you run two less days a week and strength train two days a week you will do so much better as a runner so hopefully that was beneficial hopefully you get a good little nugget or two um, if you have any questions on program design feel free to dm you can email at info at uh, hope you guys enjoyed and look for more content to come thank you